Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Yep. Good to know. Uh, today, we are going to be working through the, the rest of Act 3 straight up to the end. Uh, is there anything you wanted to say here at the beginning before I launched into the summary? Anything you wanted to let the folks at home know? Uh, uh, mm. Messages to pass along? Time loops uh, you want to close? Yeah, wh- uh, um, uh, kind of conversations with the spirit realm that need to be, you know, fixed, fixed at the beginning of the episode. No, I don't think so. Uh, okay. You know, this is the the back half of uh, uh, Act Three. I think a lot is going on in this episode. That's pretty interesting, or lots going on in this recording. That's pretty interesting. Uh, lots going on in this section. I think the first half of Act Three is a little uh, slow. A lot of prep work, mm-hmm. and then a lot of stuff gets paid off here on the other side. And I find mm-hmm. that very interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, all right then. Uh, I'll I'll just summarize. Uh, when we last left off. Uh, dad was in the mysterious realm of Purpo, uh, and he was being observed by a sour-faced but somehow familiar, uh, implored bureaucrat who we were given the opportunity maybe to name, uh, but really, uh, the name that is offered is not the one that he takes. The familiar bureaucrat turns out to be named Jack Noir. He is the arch agent for the Spurb Games Dark Kingdom and resents how everyone has to dress like clowns and jesters now. However, the monarch of the kingdom, uh, insists that he put on a silly hat and he grudgingly does so before heading off to face John's dad himself. Back in his dad's room, John finds some birthday presents, including a box of Gushers. He is absolutely horrified to discover that they are produced by the baked goods brand Betty Crocker. Meanwhile, Jade meets up with Beck, her pet-slash-devil beast, uh, who turns out to be a faceless dog with the power to manipulate space. Sure, whatever. Rose escapes the Skyanet lab just before it is obliterated by a meteor, and she takes shelter in her house, which is still surrounded by fire. Jade falls asleep and dreams she is wearing golden pajamas in a room that physically mirrors her own. Her nap activates a robot on her island that mimics the movements and gestures of Jade in the dream. Dreaming Robot Jade finds a birthday package John sent her, which she has other plans for. We flash back to the previous winter when John told her he has mailed it, along with gifts for Dave and Rose, who all have birthdays in the same week. He and Jade complain about the many internet trolls that have been harassing them. In the present, John returns to his room to find it vandalized with clown graffiti. He assumes the imps are responsible, but Rose informs him that it has always been there and she just never thought to mention it. John refuses to believe her. Rose hypothesizes that John made the drawings unconsciously uh, and that his dad's interest in clowns was only an attempt to bond over what he thought were his son's interests, and the revelations from earlier have caused John to finally see the truth. Back in Jade's dream, she flies out of her bedroom window and explores Prospit, a golden planet that orbits Skya at the center of the medium in the game. She briefly passes the person who will become PM, who is a resident of this planet, apparently. She peers into a neighboring tower where a double of John is sleeping in a replica of his bedroom, complete with the insulting uh, graffiti and even a sinister clown doll. 
On future Earth, WV has landed outside the Frog Temple ruins and is suddenly sent Jade's birthday package via the purifier with a note from Jade herself. He also falls into the sights of a third Wasteland character, the gun-toting Aimless Renegade. Jade's note to WV guides him to the recently arrived PM, and he gives her the birthday package along with another note from Jade. In her dream, Jade's bedroom passes through the clouds of Skaya. She has numerous weird conversations from earlier in the story when she was acting loopy. The clouds, which turn out to be the source of Jade's bouts of precognition, show visions indicating that her house's architecture is based on the Towers of Prospect, and that when the Spurb meteor hit the prehistoric Earth, as we saw in the end-of-act animation for Act 2, Beck emerged from the resulting crater. Bro finally finishes beating up Dave, drops his sperb discs, and then fucks off on a rocket board. Facing death, Rose builds up John's house as high as she can uh, before remembering the previous winter when John sent her yarn and needles for her birthday and encouraged her to find a creative pursuit. After this, she was contacted by one of the trolls, Grim Auxiliatrix, who says that the trolls have talked to the kids in the future, and apparently the trolls say this sort of thing a lot. Dave also flashes back to his birthday when John sent him the Stiller Shades and he stopped wearing a copy of his bro's sunglasses. Dave then has a conversation with a third troll, Adios Toreador. Dave makes so many homophobic jokes that A.T. gets uncomfortable and blocks him. Jack Noir then confronts Dad, who destroys Jack's silly hat, and in return, Jack allows him to escape. In the future, the aimless renegade prepares to kill WV and PM, but using Jade's instructions, they misdirect him. PM uses a machine called a Sendificator to transport John's present to Jade into the distant past, where a very young Jade receives it, along with some pumpkin seeds and a t-shirt, and learns of John for the first time. In the present of the narrative, that is, Jade does all of the stuff that lets all of the stuff in the future happen, and then she enters the Frog Temple ruins. Dave installs the Spurb client to bring Rose into the game. Dave prototypes Rose's sprite with the corpse of Jaspers and an eldritch princess doll. The resulting entity saves Rose's life when she jumps over a waterfall to grab her entry object, a crystalline wine bottle. A firestorm builds and the Zazerpan statue is broken, showing that Rose's house was the original location of WV's terminal in the future. In the game, Nana Sprite grabs John's copy of the Sassacre book, the new copy that is, and inscribes it with the same message we saw in the older copy of the book at the beginning of this act, before she tosses it into the void below the house. In the Frog Temple, Jade finds a large lotus flower with a countdown timer. When it reaches zero, the lotus flower opens and Jade finds within, somehow, Dave's copies of the Spurb Discs. John decimates a whole bunch of monsters and then enters the first gate above his house. The closing panels show that John's house is perched above not an empty expanse, but in fact a cloud-covered planet. And with this, Act 3 ends. Yep. <laughs> Lot going on. Yep. So much stuff. <laughs> so, uh, uh <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, in the, the last part, um, you had some stuff you wanted to say about this imp lord named Jack Noir, and I didn't know if you wanted to start out with, with, uh, imp lord thoughts. Yeah. He's a little tall gremlin. Mm -hmm. I, I will, uh, admit 
I like Jack Noir's whole deal here. I like his like <laughs> gremlin serape he's got going on. I like his dumb hat. Mm-hmm. I think looking cool to me. Mm-hmm. IMO. Uh, but we, but so we get, uh, this is on five or no, f- five, nothing. Nine fifty two. We get him like looking through some screens at John's dad and we're, we're naming him. But then the name that we get like a keyboard with some typey typey fingers mm-hmm. naming him spade slick, who I think is a midnight crew, right? Yep. The leader of the midnight crew spade slick. Mm-hmm. And he kind of looks like the midnight crew. Mm hmm. Like, you know, his facial features and everything. Mm-hmm. But anyway, what's going on with this computer keyboard? It's I think it's so fascinating that you zeroed in on this uh, because in the archival uh, or not the archival, but in serial reading, you know, in in the, the threads that I'm rereading along with with the comic, uh, mm-hmm. this gets mentioned like once and no one really cares. Someone brings it up. They're like, hey, what's up with this keyboard? Who are whose fingers are these? Because you see like a keyboard and you see someone type the name Spade Slick uh, and then sort of, uh, you know, notably like what happens is the name is entered and then the narrative responds uh, and by narrative, right, where we're getting like sort of this character's perspective, Spade Slick got a nice ring to it, but you know your own name and that damn well ain't your name. So then the, the command is take another stab at it and the Fingers on the keyboard type in a new command, which is state name and rank. And then that's when uh, we get the whole thing that, you know, you are Jack Noir, the archagent of a dark kingdom. Purpo. So uh, what happens in in kind of, uh, you know, serial reading? And again, there might have been more conversations happening, like on the MSPA forums, which are uh, dead. Uh, but in, in the Something Awful thread, someone brings up, uh, it's like, hey, we haven't seen this before, have we? We've not, we've not seen someone typing on a keyboard, or rather we have, but when we've seen it, it was the, um, it was like WV or PM, right? They have mm-hmm. uh, keyboards that they use to communicate with the kids. Uh, so this is a different type of keyboard. It looks like, you know, like a, a Logitech, like something you would oh, just buy oh, at the yeah. store. Yeah, this is like a Dell, uh, <laughs> you know, like came with the PC at a, at school mm-hmm. looking keyboard. And then the fingers that we see are not like the 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 stubby little uh, fingers of like WV. They they look like a person's fingers um, and they have a skin tone to them, which is interesting because uh, if you've not uh, read Homestuck and haven't some, if somehow have you listened this far and have just not looked at any of this stuff. Uh, all of the kids are drawn in black and white. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's interesting. You call it a skin tone. I would assume this is like a comical glove, like a Joker's glove. Well, I mean, it might be, but it is. Mm-hmm. It, it, the point is like uh, it's you can it's not rec- black and white. Right. It's not black and white. And it's not like uh, it, it's not the same kind of coloring that other like characters in the comic have. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think in the, the the something awful thread, someone is like, well, you know, I think it could be, um, you know, another uh, like character like WV or PM. Like it could be that uh, someone says or I think it's it's either that um, there are three options. I don't remember what all of them are, but one of them is like maybe like this is intended to represent the reader. Um like the like that is to say, like the actual like person reading the comic or the person who's following along with the comic as it's being updated. Uh, the reason I don't remember all three of these is that none of them are right. 
Um, and I'm not going to tell anybody who is typing this because we haven't met that character yet, sort of. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So it is a character. Mm hmm. But what's interesting is that you could just blow right by this, as I think most people did, and sort of accept it as like, oh, this is to show that uh, Jack in this case, right? Jack is going to push back on being named. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, that's that's something, I guess, to to consider there. Uh, but I will also say that, like, this is a character. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to figure out what's going on here, and I will revisit that point later. Uh, well, so here, here's a question for you. Uh, how much of this is, uh, player input versus, uh, you know, form user input as opposed to just something going on its own? Well, uh, it, it's impossible to say for sure, but what I can say is that, well, I, here's what I can imagine could happen. Someone could look at this character and think like, hey, that looks a lot like Spade Slick. And so I'm sure that if the forum commands were open at this point, um, which is just it's something that I, I can't know it right now. Uh, mm -hmm. If the forum commands were open, I can see, you know, a bunch of readers being like, oh, that's obviously Spade Slick. Name yourself Spade Slick. Uh, but state name and rank, I don't think is a, a reader command. Hmm. Yeah, it's not formatted that way, certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a command from from some other sort of uh, entity, let us say. Mm. And then we have Jack, who is the arch agent and has been watching uh, Dad just whip up a bunch of imp ass on <laughs> his fenestrated walls, which are like literally they're they're giant uh sort of computer screens that look like windows or not even really computer screens right they are just like screens but they mm -hmm. look like a four paned window um and this is just sort of incidentally a uh, a sort of joke that calls back to problem sleuth where you would find you, you in Problem Sleuth, characters would find like windows in rooms and then it would be like, climb out the window. And it's like, that's not a window. It's a monitor. And it's just showing like a, a video feed of outside. <laughs> mm. Yeah, he also says that someone stole his fourth wall. Yes, because there. so it's how this image is set up is you have the the fenestrated wall that is showing dad. Then you have Jack in front of the wall watching that. And then to either side of Jack and kind of a, you know, perspectival view is uh, two more fenestrated walls as if it were it would be like a cubicle. But the fourth wall is missing. And what we are looking at Jack through is, you know, the the so-called fourth wall of the fiction or rather, you know, the fourth wall of our own screen. Uh, and here just to, you know, drop a little note or breadcrumb, uh, think back to when I was talking about Alexander Galloway and the interface effect and how Galloway uh, talks about how interfaces present themselves as transparent windows uh, or as doorways. But, you know, windows is obviously the, the key point here. Um, and they are not. That is not what an interface is. It is not a window. It is not uh, transparent. It is a process. And there are things being folded into it that uh, are at work, even if we can't see them. Hmm. 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 It's quite interesting, I guess. <laughs> you sound thrilled. Well, I, it's a it's a thin joke. Maybe this <laughs> is going to come back and be really cool in a cool way, but. Someone stole my fourth wall is in, in a metatextual little experience ex thing. Not, mm -hmm. you know, I'm good. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think that's fair. Like, I, it's it's like a it's a cute little joke. It's like, huh, I laugh at it and then I continue on. Um, mm. I really like how Jack refuses. Like, I, I love that Jack is just completely pissed off that he has to dress like a jester. Yeah. Yes, he. Ha- I, I really like that it establishes that like these people pre-existed this. They're not invented by Sburb in the game. They they had a life beforehand, and they hate dressing like that. And I also really love that his like boss shows up and points directly to the hat, like mm-hmm. through the screens. Mm-hmm. And it was like you need to put that hat on. He hates <laughs> it. He's like, Argh! yeah, no. Jack's little uh, like his tongue out face is so good, but like. <laughs> put on a hat (laughs) yeah he's great Uh, I'll have more to say about about Jack later there's actually some interesting things that Hussey says in the commentary here but um, in sort of typical form for the commentary uh, Hussey will take a character's first appearance and then like tell you literally every single thing that they do in the comic from that point forward and then talk about other stuff Uh, so (laughs) I'm not going to read that right now yeah, maybe not the best way to, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I guess, I mean, there's a way of engaging with this where you just don't give a shit about spoilers and you just kind of go through it. I think that would probably, like, in the optimal universe of experiencing Homestuck, that might actually be the best way to go with it. We, you know, we're trying to do here, we're doing a little bit of a simulation mm-hmm. of, like, you know, someone who is fully aware of the whole thing and someone who is not and then kind of comparing those things. That's part of our method, I think, here in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think if I were just reading this in a broad sense, I would probably just go whole hog and like maybe read an explainer or something. Maybe listen to the entirety of Homestuck Made This World before <laughs> reading it. Uh, because, you know, I've said this a couple times, but rereading this is much more informative. Like, when I read it through all the way through and then like revisit some panels for the show, I get more out of it because I'm able to make better connections. And so it's a, the, by its very nature is a um, thing that is works better on revisiting or, or gives you more every time you revisit it, I guess like most texts do. Um, but I think Homestuck really lives in that spot. And so mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, I just, I don't know in, in the world in a broad sense, if there's anything that is truly spoilable about a text for me. And that's just, your personal preference like uh the aesthetic uh the aesthetic experience of sitting down and watching a movie and sitting through the film and and getting to the point where you understand a full context and kind of the affective registers of seeing uh you know whatever the the spoilers for the you know the thing that's spoiled about the sixth sense or whatever right like mm-hmm. even if you know the end of that movie it still works that's actually the power of that movie mm-hmm. uh is that it it rewards rewatching so much i i cannot I, I can't talk up that movie enough, even now, 20 years later. Uh, but I feel like Homestuck's kind of the same way. We're like, eh. Like, if I knew about some of the twists that are coming, I don't know if it would impact my feelings too much about them one way or the other. Um, because the the joy is not really in the narrative turn, for me at least. The joy is in the seeing how everything interlocks with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, especially in sort of the thing about the commentary that I think is just very clear uh, is that... It's not for like reading these books is not the recommended entry point into Homestuck, which is actually Mm -hmm. pretty fascinating because there's a point uh, later on 
where I remember uh, Hussey giving some sort of interview or answering a question on Forum Spring or something uh, where they said like, oh, yeah, no, like my plan is to eventually like think of Homestuck as a rough draft and then the books are going to be like a, a sort of final draft. And I think at some point that gets 86 uh, mm. very clearly because uh, just this book is for someone like me, right? Like th this mm -hmm. book is printed for uh, people like me to who, who already know everything uh, basically to get this author commentary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's by turns interesting and frustrating. And in that way it carries forward the, the homestuck banner with a plum. Gushers. Mm hmm. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, you also talked in the last part. You had some more to say about Gusher's humor. And so that's right after uh, Jack goes off to find dad, uh, where where John realizes that Betty Crocker, his arch nemesis, uh, she of the baked goods empire, the person who dominates his dad's life, I guess. Uh, she mm -hmm. also makes Gushers. Yep. He kind of takes this harder than he takes the revelation about his dad just being a businessman. Oh, yeah. Well, and all, all of the build up here, too. I mean, uh, I think we've let the capsule log <laughs> kind of linger. I don't think we've talked about that too much. But like here, you know, John discovers his dad's um, uh, birthday gifts for him that he wasn't able to get beforehand. Mm -hmm. And it includes a captcha deck, which is a capsule log combining system. Mm -hmm. to where like multiple capture logs are true at one time. And so now John like has a full third of his screen taken up by like his inventory system that allows you to fetch things from both sides. It's wild. There's a lot going on here. Well, it's like the inventory um, system finally becomes workable. <laughs> yes. And it's like massive complexity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, but uh, alongside of that, he like discovers these gushers. That's a big part of it. And, but like, and this is the kind of joke, this is like, you know, cause I've talked a few times about how like Hussey's humor at some points really gets me and like is very funny to me. Um, only really in act three has it become like alienating in some places. I, I think that the, these gushers jokes where they have titles. So like this one is massive tropical brain hemorrhage. Mm -hmm. That is the absolute bottom of the basement joke to me. Mm hmm. Like, it, it's a play on, like, pop culture. It's, like, a lazy joke within a pop culture thing. Like, this is truly just, like, the antithesis of humor that I enjoy. <laughs> and, and we commit to the bit so hard here. Mm -hmm. uh, especially when he starts inventing new gushers later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ugh. Ugh. I just... Ugh. I do... It is not for me. Yeah, and it's... I mean... What is interesting about this? Well, actually, what I would be interested in knowing is like, how does anyone younger than me relate to these jokes? Because for me, reading this fresh, uh, like Gushers had, you know, nostalgia value. It's like the high C ecto cooler. I remember seeing the Slimer commercial on television when I was a kid. I remember actually specifically Gushers commercials because they were horrifying. Uh, do you remember mm -hmm. these? I think uh, I remember them. This might not be for Gushers, but I remember a, a commercial that was like uh, you put it in your mouth and then people would like open their mouth and like show you their tongue where like different colors had come out. That might not have been for Gushers, but that was a particularly affecting 
unhappy commercial for me as a child i um uh, <laughs> which one do you have it seems like you've got one locked and loaded so like quite specifically i remember these gushers commercials that it, like what would happen in the commercial is that the kid would eat the gusher and then they would be like oh man this is great and then uh from below them like a uh like yeah. jet of colored fruit juice like would literally gush up through the ground and like rocket them up into the air <laughs> yeah. um and i remember these commercials because i quite specifically re i remember them speaking of alienating i remember and i would have been like i don't know six years old or something when these were on air um mm -hmm. But uh, I remember these being alienating commercials because I remember watching them and thinking that doesn't seem like fun at all. Why would I want to eat that candy? I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't want to be shot into the air. <laughs> uh, it's fun. I don't know. I just think they're weird and gross and I don't care for them. And uh, but yeah, I, I, I truly don't know either. I get a sense that Gushers kind of came back. I, I feel like we're the... Um, uh, the forgotten generation of Gushers in some ways, because uh, I think Gushers hit really hard when we were very young. And mm -hmm. like, uh, I, I just didn't have beyond any of my like, uh, um, like, uh, I don't know, feelings about them as a candy. We, we were not in a position for like people to be getting Gushers all the time in my life. So mm -hmm. it wasn't really a problem in a broad sense. Uh, but, uh, but I feel like once I was like a teenager, they came back again. Mm. And like people were into them. Uh, like younger kids were and like I still see them at the grocery store they're still doing their thing I think they're in like the fruit roll-up section which mm -hmm. is still, still going too but uh like weird pseudo gelatinous treats mm -hmm. <laughs> thanks the 90s <laughs> yeah. uh but but yeah this is like a whole bit and and I do appreciate that the thing where John has a, a quote mental breakdown here mm -hmm. uh, on 979 it literally ends with a big like text that says this is stupid <laughs> Yes. Like, like this bit is dumb. <laughs> there's no reason to do this bit at all. And yeah, I feel the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, that's kind of I think that's part of like the, the joy of Homestuck in a broader sense. Even if I don't like this and this is not like humor that I'm enjoying at all. I do enjoy the kind of meta situation of like Hussy goes for it. Like mm -hmm. it's it's a bad joke and Hussey's going to do all the same amount of work as you would do for like a big, important like moment in the comic. Also for discovering Gushers is made by Betty Crocker that will also be gone for. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, and I think that's extremely endearing in a, in a general sense to this comic that like they're going to do it. They're going to go for it. Yeah, no, it's it's a it is absolutely one of the charms of Homestuck for me. And if uh, you listen to, say, the previous part of this episode uh, where I talk about, you know, how much I hate uh, fantasy and all sorts of fiction, uh, this is one of the ways that Homestuck actually ends up working for me. If we're going to think about, uh, you know, all of like the lore that we've been getting uh, this this sort of like tonal weirdness where Homestuck will simultaneously treat something very, very seriously, like all of this lore that we're getting from the game. And at the same time is always kind of maintaining a sort of distance from it uh, is very interesting to me because even at this point, like, you know, like the world is ending, like, <laughs> like John has played a game that has brought about the apocalypse. All of his friends might die. He's stuck in some sort of weird alternate fantasy realm. And, uh, in, in, you know, with all this like implied magical bullshit that's going to be happening soon. Uh, and he, he's having a mental breakdown, quote unquote, over discovering that Betty Crocker made gushers. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, and yeah, I like that. And, and that, I, you know, it brings me close. Even though I don't like the joke, it brings me closer to John Egbert as a character. Where I'm like, yeah, man, <laughs> you got feelings. You feel strongly about some stuff, John. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of? Well, so right after that is when we get our not our first glimpse of Beck, but our first kind of like face to face, so to speak, with Beck. What, what do you think of this? This shit is absolutely wild. I have no idea what to do with this. Like Jade's primary interaction with Beck is using a gun. We didn't really talk about this, but Jade never leaves her house without a gun. And like her grandfather taught her, the, you know, weapons mastery, basically. Mm-hmm. And she's just like doing murders. You know, she's like willing to do it. And it's like fun and fancy free stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not treated with any seriousness is what I mean. And uh, the it's almost like uh, Jade is like Jade's relationship with her grandfather is kind of like the wild thornberries. <laughs> And now I'm wondering if that's kind of like a shadow influence text here. Maybe. Because because the Wild Thornberries were as cartoon from my, my youth. I don't know. It's from like the late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the idea behind it is it's like uh, you got a family and they uh, the parents are like way into animals. And so the family like moves around the world and they get into shenanigans around animals. And one of the kids can talk to animals. Is that is that correct? Yes. Like the, the oldest okay. daughter or whatever. Yeah, and so they get into shenanigans. That's the whole deal. But the but the kind of pitch there is like he, the dad is like the most over the top safari, uh, like um, uh, guy, uh, the Australian fellow who died. Oh, Steve Irwin. He's kind of Steve Irwin esque. This mm-hmm. is definitely happening during the Steve Irwin era yeah. too. And the dad, uh, for uh, the record, in Wild Thornberries is is voiced by Tim Curry. Uh, oh, I didn't know. I, I knew he, it was a Tim Curry-esque character. I didn't know it was actually Tim Curry. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's actually Tim Curry. And so he is just like, you know, Tim Curry. So he's having so much fun with that with that character. <laughs> yeah, but so it's this kind of like like furthest imagine. It's it's stretching what what the kind of uh, Steve Irwin-esque or Jack Hanna-esque person could do to its like absolute furthest limit. And Jade's and then the kids are just like dealing with that. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're a little bit more grounded or realistic. And uh, uh, th- that's kind of Jade's relationship to her grandfather, who is like the most stretched and weird version of like the Victorian colonial, um, you know, collector, big game hunter guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know, I d- the, the weird tripartite description I gave last time. Uh, very similar, like schematically there. Mm-hmm. That's the only time I think I've ever seen that kind of relationship. But anyway. Point being is she's got a gun and you can click. It's like a strife animation and you click and you get a little uh, a reticle here. Yeah. And you can you click on the dog. Can you click on anything? You, you nope, can. You got to click on the dog. Oh, okay. no, you cannot. I'm, cl- I'm clicking on the background. Nothing. Yeah. I'm doing it right now because I couldn't remember. You got to click on the dog. It zooms in and then a bullet goes in like super slow motion and then shoots into Beck. Mm hmm. And then you do it again, and then like it starts teleporting around, and like time and space starts breaking. Like you can, there's like an he's like alpha morphed, and so you can see through it, uh, through mm-hmm. Beck the whole time. Mm-hmm. Time and shit are, are doing. They're teleporting around this island. It's bizarre. I have no idea what's happening here. Well, they teleport around the island, then they teleport. Uh, so every time uh, Jade shoots at Beck, uh, 
like in order to dodge the bullet, like basically Beck teleports them away. And so they mm-hmm. teleport into the house. Then they teleport onto the roof where Dave and bro are fighting. So like, they're not just confined to the Island. Uh, I'm trying to think of their other. Yeah, no. And then they also, they teleport into the, um, the Skynet laboratory too, right? They go to other locations in the story where other characters are or will be, uh, yeah, the background is flipping between those locations. Yeah. Uh, so like, and it's just, I remember like reading this update and just being like, what the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> like, I have no idea. And, and, and Jade's doing all of this to like, uh, to get access to the, uh, the blue box, the mm-hmm. present from John that's behind the dog, but then does this and, and she's like, go fetch and like shoots a bullet way out. And the dog goes and gets it. It's very well animated. Cause it just like zips up to it and goes, Rawr. you know, like bites the bullet out of the midair and then comes back and spits it on the ground. And then Beck gets a, um, a big green steak. Yeah. And prepared, you know, an irradiated steak. Yeah. And then it cuts to a weird, like very low fi, MS paint animation of Jade and the dog dancing around with the stuffed grandpa. Yeah. And then just hanging out with the, the, the sort of flashing caption at the top while like little end of battle victory music plays uh, good yes. dog, best friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're doing the like run in place, like final fantasy six style mm-hmm. um, where it's like one repeated animation that gets flipped back and forth. Yeah. Very, very. Uh, so a lot of like different, What's interesting about it is like, as you're, as you're just talking about, right? Some like video game aesthetics get brought in. These like things you're familiar with if you've played, you know, JRPGs or anything like that. There's this like flash animation thing. Like, uh, you know, I would say that a full 50% or more of flash games are about using a little reticle to do stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a huge part of, of like flash animation stuff is like people figure out, Oh yeah, you can make any game where you just have a mouse clicking on stuff, be a shooting game. The end, um, you know, that dominates the the game space there as much as like the puzzle pla- or the platformer, I guess I should say does or, or tower defense. And then we get this like weird lo-fi kick at the end of like the, the most MS paint looking ass thing for some reason that I don't, <laughs> I don't know why. So anyway, there's just a lot happening in this, uh, you know, 980 on page 980. Yeah. And then, so after that is when we get just a little bit of Rose where she escapes the lab and she ends up back in the house. And then we're back to Jade because immediately after this battle, Jade falls asleep again. Jade has narcolepsy and just falls asleep at inopportune times. And what happens, of course, to, to establish that Beck really is a good dog and best friend. When Jade falls asleep, uh, Beck picks her up and teleports her into her bedroom and drops her in her bed and then leaves. But when Jade sleeps, uh, that's when we get uh, this weird robot that wakes up, uh, sort of thing number one. Uh, and then all of this stuff where, like, suddenly we have Jade in these gold, this, like, golden dress, um, but, like, they're, they're pajamas. And she's, like, in this room that looks like hers, but uh, has kind of this weird intricate patterning on the walls. It's a different color. The light quality is very different. And there's a bunch of panels that are 
you know, clearly meant to like they're they're sort they come in the order that they do because they have Jade like uh, in her dream walking around, and then it shows how as Jade walks around in her dream, the robot that is in the waking world is following those same commands, and so there is like a a, a spatial analogy between her actual bedroom and this bedroom in her dream, and then even further on, uh. You know, once we sort of get there, like between the geography of the island and then the like Prospect, the the place where Jade is, uh, which turns out to be, you know, a game construct. Uh, but the first thing that happens then is we get this set of well, we, we set up the the birthday present things, um, which is kind of special, I think, because it, it gives us some backstory on these characters that we wouldn't have got in kind of the, the mainline run of the narrative. Uh, you know, we, we like flashback to John's house. We see that there's uh, snow because it's the winter. It's in December. So we we know that it's in the past. And we also see that John had a I don't know if this is a thing that necessarily would have uh, jumped out to you that John used to have a different screen name. Yeah, I, that yeah. did stick out to me. OK, yeah, he, he used to be the ghosty trickster. Mm hmm. He changed his name to ectobiologist in order to uh, stop the trolls from harassing him. So, yeah. uh, again, like the, the trolls are being kind of like worked into, you know, we're, it's a little bit of backfilling here. Right. But uh, uh, working the trolls into the narrative by placing them at a time before the narrative proper began. This is also we didn't talk about it. I, I don't remember where it shows up. I didn't write the note down. But so John's posters on the wall are covered in Joker stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> like they're graffitied all over and. Uh, he's like, oh, I can't believe they destroyed my all the imps destroyed my posters. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm Rose, blanking on her name. Rose says, no, they were that way the whole time. And then she shows the um, game FAQs like thing, mm -hmm. you, you know, images that she captured earlier, and they were back in the past, all messed up. Mm -hmm. And that is not resolved in this act, is it? Uh. I'm no, not really. Um, I, I'm going to say that this this sort of thing will continue to develop in in, in other ways. Okay. Um, Got it. Just what, some time weird time stuff going on. Yeah. So, uh, what is fascinating about this is that th this is this is a hell of a thing to read the live reactions to. Is what I'll say, <laughs> um, because everyone immediately begins second guessing uh, because they're like, "Wait a minute, I've seen." Like, I've seen the panels. I've seen those panels. Mm -hmm. I've seen the, John's room in the past. Those drawings weren't there. Like, Rose must be lying or something. Or Rose must be confused. Or something else has happened. Uh, and I think it's very interesting that this is the, the sort of, uh, you know, reflexive movement. Uh, rather than, you know, to think about the interface effect again, uh, to think about the fact that what we are allowed to see in these panels is being controlled mm -hmm. by processes to which we are not necessarily privy. Mm hmm. Yeah, we're looking at it through a game screen. Right. And so, uh, you know, Rose, her, her, she says, you know, that stuff is like was always on your walls. And I just didn't mention it because it's your room. Like, I assumed you knew it was there. And I thought it was. And this is the other extremely funny thing. She was like, I thought you might have just been like having a passive aggressive war with your father. <laughs> because that's exactly what Rose would do. <laughs> um. 
But John is like, no. And he just, you know, it, it refuses to sort of countenance this idea. But then Rose starts to, to psychoanalyze him. And she says, you know, maybe uh, really it's you who's into these clowns for some reason, John. And you subconsciously drew all this stuff on the walls. And the reason your dad was uh, constantly going on about Harlequins is because he saw what you were drawing on your walls. And he wanted you to or he wanted to, you know, bond with you. So he he sort of, you know, had his own interest in Harlequins. Uh, and I also just want to say uh, the fact that Rose uses and constantly uses the word subconsciously lets you know she hasn't read her Freud. <laughs> like you might not have noticed, Cameron, but I'm a bit of a pedant. <laughs> No way, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> uh but seriously, I'm just going to soapbox here for a little bit. Uh, if, if this if this ends up applying to you, I, I promise you, I don't actually care. I don't really judge you, but it's just a fun fact. Uh, lots of people tend to talk about the subconscious uh, and they tend to assume that the subconscious is like, you know, a, a Freudian construct and, and, and all that stuff. No, not at all. Subconscious is a f word that Freud explicitly uh, rejects uh, in favor of the preferred unconscious uh and there's you know sort of a lot of reasoning behind this that doesn't really matter because none of us are going to be uh, trained psychoanalysts um but this is one of those little it's one of those little tricks that'll let you know when someone has actually read freud and paid attention versus when they haven't uh and when they haven't they'll say subconscious but like freud comes out and says like no subconscious it is unconscious and there is a distinction there because you know for, for freud it's kind of like um is the subconscious like a thing below the thing or is it the fact that your conscious mind cannot sort of like uh, incorporate other things? And that's why it's the unconscious. It's the thing that consciousness excludes rather than the thing that operates below consciousness. Yeah, so. it's, it is not a hierarchy. It is a uh, set of uh, uh, interconnected dependencies. Mm -hmm. So that's just that's just some uh, fun psychoanalysis chat getting to, to you know, out rows rows there a little bit. Mm hmm. Yeah, but that's uh, that's that sets up a kind of thing. And, you know, it adds it adds an unexpected amount of complexity, psychological complexity to these characters. You know, not only are we looking through kind of this mediated screen where uh, what we are seeing or not seeing might be controlled, but uh, how these kids understand their world and how like the meanings that they map onto it. Um, you know, might not necessarily fit together in the best way possible. And of course, we've had sort of hints of this with like, I mean, we've had hints of it since like John and his dad. There's always been a kind of weird ambiguity there. But the same thing with Rose and mom, like where Rose just assumes that everything that her mom does is being done uh, passive aggressively. Uh, and then sort of, you know, Dave and, and his whole deal with bro. So I don't know. Fun stuff, I guess. Kids in psychology and possibly psychology problems. Uh oh. Mm hmm. No way. Mm hmm. The uh, but yeah, so you know, the John kind of keeps doing John stuff. You know, I would say he's like still playing. It's really weird to read this kind of back part of Act Three because it it really sets up two. Well, I guess three actually, like wholly different universes of stuff to care about. Mm -hmm. You know, you got John doing John stuff. I mean, it's the same stuff he's been doing since the beginning. He's kind of playing this little puzzle game of trying to get to that little portal at the top of his world, um, you know, where his his house is right now, where he's stuck. And, uh, you know, that. And so it's him and Rose kind of playing their game. Mm -hmm. uh, then you've got the uh, Wayward Vagrant, 
and the the mendicant, uh, and they're like far future stuff and what they're doing, which is really unclear. We don't really know what they're up to, um, other than they are getting boxes that are packages that are like the boxes that we have seen the kids uh, trading around. Mm-hmm. And then you have Rose on like a straight up HP Lovecraft style dream quest. Yep. Um, <laughs> With with this with with an additional uh, layer of uh, this robot like floating around in the real world because the real world maps perfectly to this dream space that she is in, um, and so we get all these things. It's, it starts on like ten twenty eight, but she like flies outside of her house since the robot flying around. And so we get these shots that are like, it's Rose above this giant, you know, this is what I described to you as Anne Orlando mm-hmm. in, in our uh, DMs that we were talking about it. But, you know, she's flying out of this massive tower and she's flying over this like, you know, uh, Photoshop together kind of real world cathedral into like a hyper cathedral kind of space. I think it's actually, I think these are actually images, Photoshopped images of the real cathedral that Anne Orlando is based off of. Oh, just fun fact, uh, Hussey talks about this in the commentary. It probably is like that cathedral and also all sorts mm. of other cathedrals. So Hussey talks about how uh, mm. both uh, Prospit and Purpo um, are, I, I'm going to call it Purpo from now on, uh, are both uh, made from just like Google image searching for cathedrals and then just like stitching them all together. Uh, and I, I just want to note this actually because uh, it, lines up with something uh, that Lev Manovich says in the book, you know, Language of New Media. Uh, if you listen to our Game Studies Study Buddies episode on that book, I say that I have homestuck thoughts that I could have voiced there that uh, I'm mm-hmm. going to say for right now, which is that homestuck does not work without uh, this sort of new media technique that Manovich calls, uh, you know, sampling. Or does he call it sampling? Mm-hmm. Does he call it something else? I remember... I think it does call it okay. sampling. Uh, but you know, the idea being that uh, once all kind of like uh, object uh, or once uh, so many different aspects of production can be converted into code, uh, then it becomes less about creation than it, as much as it is about uh, pulling things from a database. So uh, all of the stuff that's like, you know, the stock photos that uh, Hussey uses to make various pieces of furniture in the kids' houses or like all of those mummies and things. Um, and then here in the case of uh, Prospect, uh, we see how Homestuck Homestuck does not exist, or it does not exist in this way in a world in which uh, Google image search does not exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hussey uh, is making use of these affordances in order to rapidly put together art assets, uh, or you know, more rapidly than than they would be if they were like searching all this down through some other type of database or like drawing it by hand. Uh, and that really enables kind of the, the very speedy updates that characterize uh, MSPA and Homestuck. So. Sorry, continue, yeah. though, with uh, uh, yeah. Orlando. <laughs> well, you can actually see it, too. You can, like, if you look, you can see the blur tool and where the blur tool is used in some of these images um, to, like, staple these different things together. And definitely, like, the the thing that really, where I think this very particular feature is being re- uh, um, kind of replicated from photos from the Anne Orlando uh, reference real world cathedral. I don't know the name of it, but they, uh, but specifically it's these like, um, uh, not, hor- not vertical, not horizontal, but diagonal. There okay. we go. Sorry. <laughs> I, <laughs> I wasn't sure where we could go there. <laughs> the other one. 
uh, it's these kind of diagonal struts that are going on, and then they're like mirrored and flipped on the image, and you can see like where the blur tool has been used to kind of make these things go together. So what's interesting to me too is that you know it's sampled, but also and then recombined mm-hmm. and, and remixed, I guess you know to use some some you know early two thousands academic language around that, uh-huh. uh, but it's also done poorly. Um, it's done just well enough to like make the effect work. Mm-hmm. Hussey's not trying to disguise, you know, this, it's not, this is not trying to make it look, you know, like an absolutely accurate and real world space. It is very much like done just good enough. And I actually think that's really interesting too, that you can see the tool being used. Um, you know, it's not polished in the way that, um, you know, if you were trying to fake a real thing, you might polish it a little bit more, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very much. Uh, it's fictional kind of creation is right there on the front of the image. Mm-hmm. At least watching, you know, looking at it in you know 1080p in the year 2021. But but yeah, so we get these images. So like this is uh, the one the image I'm talking about here is on 1029. So we get this, and it's like Jade as a is like a human floating around, and then we get 1030, which is Jade as a robot floating around, and we get that the robot is doing these exact same things in locations on the island. And that eventually turns into these like things where she's like looking at people. So for example, we get this bizarre thing is blew my mind. It's on 1032 and 1033. Jade looks down like at a person on the ground wearing like a little like sleeping costume. (laughs) I don't know what this outfit is. (laughs) And it's the mendicant or someone that looks like the mendicant and the mendicant looks up and then we get the reverse shot of the of the uh, mendicant's eye line, and it's a robot. And then we get her POV, and then the POV is looking down at the ground or at at the water where there uh, where a tower is like coming out, and and Beck is sitting on top of the tower. And then in the next shot, we have the far future where the tower is still there, and the ground is way below it because the water is all gone, and the mendicant is standing where the mendicant is supposed to be in the in the like dream world Mm -hmm. and so it's this beautiful kind of decision to align all three of these spaces both far future and then like the homestuckers present day and then the dream world all of those are are um overlapping spaces with the same architecture and uh you know this kind of like similar visibility you know these these characters are resonating or echoing across all three of those spaces and none of them are in the same place all at one time mm-hmm. uh and yet they are in the same place all at one time I, really kind of a beautiful thing and i i, I kind of wonder you know I, I i hate to ask you this every time i find something interesting but what was the vibe around this because like if i were reading this in real time and, and it when i read it you know for the first time a couple days ago, I was like, holy shit, like, <laughs> this is the thing. Like, this is bringing it all together in a way that, like, plot just can't do, right? Mm-hmm. This is entirely being done with images. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you know, oftentimes I say things like images say things in ways that words don't, right? Images are their own language, and they do things in a different way. And, like, this is the perfect example of that. Did people pick up on that? Did, or were people as impressed as I am now with it? Well, I, I would say... <laughs> I would say your mode of apprehension is is like you know has has the benefit of uh, understanding images being your passion. <laughs> um, images uh, are my passion, yes, yeah, of course, right. Uh, y- you can you can sort of articulate these things. Uh, I I think in 
what you just did, right, which is like someone who is listening to this podcast, I think, hopefully gets a good idea of what's happening here, even though we're talking about images and understands why this is cool. What people were doing in in sort of the moment of this, you know, these updates dropping is, whoa, holy shit. Right. <laughs> because that's that's sort of the response. Uh, yeah, because like, it is. It's it's like it's damn cool. Thing number one uh, thing. It's very cool. Thing number two, uh, you know, we already had this really sudden and bizarre implication earlier in the act that when PM saw Jade on uh, the the terminal screen, uh, she was like, do I don't I know you? And here we have uh, PM apparently or someone who, you know, looks like PM seeing Jade and suddenly who these people, you know, these characters in the far future who, you know, at this point, it's it's safe to sort of assume that they seem to be like these chess people game constructs somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Like suddenly, like it starts locking together like, oh, okay, so something is going to happen. That is so the kids right uh, start the game. They enter the game. uh, The world ends. And then something happens that sends uh, people, right, like characters uh, from the game to the Earth in the post-apocalypse. And then the uh, these people on the post-apocalyptic Earth are continuing to do stuff that is influencing the game that has already happened. Yeah. Yes. Like, time is not linearly causal yes. in that way yes <laughs> uh yeah absolutely and that's maybe something that we didn't bring up in the last thing too right like what what has been established for us is that there is this big kind of cosmic chess game being played um and uh th- you know there are two different sides to it and that hasn't really been brought up too um too clearly again we did see the wandering vagrant setting up a situation kind of like that again Mm -hmm. you know as part of the mayoral work but that has not been brought to the foreground again Mm -hmm. uh, you know super clearly up until this kind of moment we were like oh yeah shit there are like two sides and there's like um you know uh, light world and dark world and we've gotten little glimmers into them and their characters who must obviously bounce around between those two places in like the material world or the mundane realm or whatever it is where the apocalypse occurred. And those are all three things happening at one time. This is also probably, I mentioned in the last part that this is the act where I came close to stopping reading Homestuck. And this is kind of about where that started happening because this is where, even though this was cool, this was also where I was thinking like, all right, we're kind of scaling up a little too much, like based on everything else that's happened so far. And then also based on what's going to happen in a little bit where, uh, um, PM like in in the future of the Earth is going to get uh, her hands on the package that Jade has sent because Jade sends it to, uh, you know, WV with the note. Um, This is just kind of where I was like, all right, I I don't know if I can follow this. Uh, Also, like, you know, it's it's kind of it's not explicitly time travel, like only objects are kind of moving through time. Uh, People aren't. Uh, Mm hmm. But I was just thinking, like, I don't know if this is ever like, I don't know if this is a thing that's going to pay off for me. Uh, but I I stuck with it. You know, I, I, you know, gave it the the old college try and then I was in it to the end. So I guess that worked out for me. But uh, you mentioned a couple of episodes ago at this point that you wanted to talk about Bill and Ted. And I think maybe we should talk about Bill and Ted again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
mean, I just have like a vague vibe that like Bill and Ted Manners here. <laughs> right. Well, it's the uh, it's the same sort of thing where like, um, you know, Bill and Ted are like it's I'm thinking of the first. Is it the first Bill and Ted movie? I think it is uh, mm-hmm. where they're trying to figure out like they need to get uh, one of their dad's keys, whichever their which one of their dads is a cop. I don't remember. But they're like, OK, well, what if uh, we, you know, uh, time traveled back, got your dad's keys, dropped them off here so we could pick them up when we were ready. Where would we leave them? And then he like walks over behind like the sign that's next to them and he looks and he finds the keys. <laughs> yes. Right. That's the first that's the end of the first film. Yes. The, the end of the first movie. Uh, and it's a similar kind of thing. Uh, here, although like the, the the complexity of it and the way that you get to see it is uh, much more convoluted in that, you know, we we have seen Jade get this package. She found it in her bedroom. Then the next time we see it, it appears next to WV and then WV picks it up and there's a letter from Jade uh, and we don't get to see what the letter says. But then WV is trying to, you know, he's, he sees PM and he like wants to talk to her. And, at, and you know, the dramatic situation here also is that there's this other guy, this other like, I guess, chess person uh, who is uh, just for the record, whereas WV and PM are just kind of wearing, you know, desert desert shrouds. Uh, the aimless renegade or AR is wearing caution tape. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and he's like just hanging. He's in the frog temple, right? The remains of the frog temple. And he's just got like all of these guns with him, like a huge stockpile of armaments. And of course, we know that Jade's grandfather has guns everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so he is like, you know, getting ready to shoot them, not because he's necessarily evil, uh, uh, as far as we know right now, but he's just like, oh, my God, these people are in f- flagrant violation next to this. Uh, uh, he is this at the point where he start he keeps calling the temple illegal. Yeah, he's like a, he seems like a, some sort of detective. Yeah, <laughs> because he's trying to figure out like a crime occurred at some point there and he's trying to solve it. And so he's mad at them for coming to messing up his crime scene, basically. Mm -hmm. So he's like going to like try to shoot them. Uh, But Jade, who knows that all of this Jade in the past knows that all of this is going to happen. And so she sends a letter to WV and PM that explains to them uh, where they should step and how they should walk in order to not get killed. So there's like that kind of Bill and Ted sort of thing going on. But then also um, this whole complicated thing where Jade knows to get her package into the future. She has to uh, get that package next near enough to the coordinates that WV is going to use to try to uh, purify the uh, harpoon and like zip line that he has seen outside of his little station, um, which is what Jade has used to move on to the tower where she is standing. So WV mm-hmm. wants that zip line so he can get down off of his station. And when he tries to purify it, uh, Jade in the past happens to put the package right where he's trying to purify. And so it gets pulled into the future. And then uh, Jade, like she, she's, she understands herself as having like used the harpoon for bait. So there's like all this like convoluted, complicated stuff where like objects are being moved around in the same place, but at different time scales. And it's just wild. <laughs> yeah. And and I, I think the kind of Bill and Tedness of it is that we don't want it, it is a fully consistent time loop 
mm-hmm. you know, in the sense of like we're watching objects move um, smoothly through time in a in a kind of a constant. Um, I mean, cycle. I mean, because it ends up going back to Jade in the end as a child. So, like you know, the the loop remains consistent. But uh, the but but we don't see the loop get made. Meaning, like we don't see you know, and, and I think the the temptation now, and I think you see this in time travel movies now, is like you get to see the montage of someone perfecting the time loop, you know, kind of the Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, oh, you see all the struggles that he has in it, and then you see him, like, solve the world perfectly. That's the temptation, I think, to do the time loopy kind of thing now. Um, but here, it's it's the Bill and Ted thing of, like, they have already done all the work to make the time loop perfect, and we just see the end result of it. Because we always would. If it is a time loop, then we would have always seen it work the perfect way. So, um, yeah, I think it's re- really kind of astonishing um, as far as, like, making that work. And so these people, you know, these the far future people, the mendicant and the, the vagrant, they get to, like, hang out and, like, live. They get to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> um, because they get this thing. And then they send it backward into in time to Jade's child. Mm-hmm. Um, so she can know about John Egbert before... I mean, she basically is like raising herself. Mm-hmm. Yes, quite cl- quite literally, right? I mean, presumably she's got some information in there too to herself. Yeah, um, and I mean, just also, uh, I think notably the uh, the t shirt that she pulls out of the the box uh, has the very prominently displayed Potato Co logo, uh, which is to uh, Potato Co is uh, 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 run by. Uh, well, it started it started with uh, Jeffrey Rowland. It's uh, they do a lot of um, merchandise work, like they're a storefront for. It, they started out web comics. I think they do other things now, uh, but at this point in time, uh, Hussey was selling MSPA merch through Topedo Co. So one, this is an ad, um, you know, it's just a sly, like little, little reminder, like, hey, folks, remember, uh, this is how I make some money. Please buy a T-shirt. Um, but two also accomplishes the, the same move that like pulling game FAQs in does, because we already know that MSPA exists within Homestuck. So uh, that that sort of other like weird omnivorous like layering on top of itself thing that that this uh, comic tends to do happens here. And it, you know, has that I think kind of the effect of pushing the comic uh, closer to the reader in that way. Or it did, I think, in 2009. Right. Mm-hmm. Then Christmas happens. Yep. <laughs> uh, so this becomes a tradition. Um, that uh, around Christmas in Homestuck, uh, some, some uh, events conspire such that uh, characters get to use the game constructs to make a whole bunch of really random wacky objects. Mm, I didn't know why this was happening, but that makes a lot of sense. Right. It's one of those things, again, that difference between, uh, you know, archival and serial reading. Uh, it's extremely fun to, you know, be checking MSPA while I'm on winter break, you know, home from from college for that. And I'm like, oh, there's an MSPA update. And like, oh, here John is, uh, you know, making all of this, uh, you know, bizarre uh, knickknack stuff. Uh, how this was done is there were reader polls in the forums. And so, uh, I think Hussey, you know, had sort of combinations of ideas early on and then people got to vote on which ones they wanted to see made. And so that's, that's how these things got chosen. Um, the other thing that I think is maybe worth mentioning then is that, uh, this is a comic that's being updated on holidays. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about sort of the labor 
in the background here. And like Hussey is posting updates on Christmas Eve. Yeah, I was I was actually clicking through it here to see. So it looks like a bunch of these come out on uh, like the 22nd and there's a big break. And then, yeah, Christmas Eve, there's the Dave Strife animation mm-hmm. <laughs> that happens. So, yeah, working hard right up to the holiday to in order to dump this on Christmas Eve. Um, which was kind of a big thing at the 10. I, I, I do remember, you know, kind of, uh, big internet updates and things like that of just like, you know, like front page updates and things like that. The big important ones being saved for like the days before holidays, a kind of like Christmas gifty kind of logic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not surprised to see this at all. Yeah. And it's, it's also, it reminds me of something else that I wanted to mention, uh, when we're thinking about like, I've already said that, uh, People in in the daily updates, right, people are starting to try to outguess the comic, um, mm-hmm. like speculate like the, the lost effect is happening every day rather than every week. Like what's going to happen next? And sometimes the form that this takes uh, can just be really bizarre things like people trying to guess what the punchline is going to be tomorrow. Like, what is the type of joke we're going to see tomorrow? Are we finally going to see, you know, uh, a a fulfillment of some sort of like punchline that we've set up in our heads? Uh, But also, especially in the case of Dave, like people are like, are we going to go back to Dave tomorrow? I want to know what's going on with Dave. Uh, So we are starting to get kind of, uh, you know, people not not necessarily settling into camps like they're going to go to war with one another, but like people are, are checking in. Uh, to see, oh, is is sort of my favorite character or sort of my current favorite uh, plot line being updated and uh, people making speculations like, oh, I think we're going to see this and then this and the, people trying to guess like the order of kind of like uh, vignettes that we're going to get just really fascinating stuff in terms of like what people are going to try to predict uh, with regard to this comic. What was the response to this uh, Dave return here? Because this is pretty uh, anticlimactic in a broad sense. So, uh, <laughs> the thing that surprised me is no one asked, where did bro get that rocket board? Cause it's a literal rocket <laughs> board. Like he hops it on is. it and flies off. <laughs> yeah. It's rad. It's very cool. I get it. <laughs> but no one is just like, wait a minute. What? <laughs> I guess, you know, at this point with like what's going on on Jade's Island, like bro can have sure. a rocket board. <laughs> Um, so, uh, people are sort of like, people have been amused that Dave is, is getting whooped. Uh, but what really blows people's minds, uh, Dave had the pattern on his shirt was a record. Mm. Um, and actually a thing that I, yeah. And a thing that I, uh, should have mentioned in the first couple of Dave strifes, uh, where he's fighting bro, an interesting thing that happens, uh, is, uh, Dave, uh, you know, the, the, the menu comes up and it's, you know, like a grieve and abscond and all this stuff. Uh, bro comes in with his katana and he slices through Dave's menu. Mm-hmm. So he breaks the menu so Dave can't escape, which is, again, hmm, think about this bro Dave relationship and kind of like what their dynamic is, uh, even though mm-hmm. it's a ha ha fun right now. Uh, but um, it, it uh establishes this interesting thing well not even establishes it's actually following up on the fact that dave cut his uh name entry form in half when someone tried to name him uh insufferable prick so dave and bro get to get to mess around with menus in that way but dave also has on his shirt this uh image of a record and when bro beats him up the record on his shirt breaks 
And from that point forward, there is like his shirt is a broken record. The other thing that happens is uh, like bro, Dave fights with a sword. But in this fight, Dave's sword breaks and his uh, uh, strife specibus changes from sword kind to one half sword kind. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Dave has a broken sword and a broken record. And then people realized way back in uh, just before the end of Act Two, when WV is messing around with uh, the terminal and he switches from John to Rose uh, and he sees like the broken Zazerpan statue and then he switches Mm -hmm. from that to Dave. Dave is standing there with a broken record on his shirt. (gasps) Right. So it's the future. Yes. The future pass. Mm hmm. Like we're we're like closing another time loop. So it's not actually a time loop in the sense that like uh, items are getting bopped around through characters in that way. But the narrative is setting up its own kind of time loops where it's like, here's a thing that doesn't seem to make sense. And then a little while later, it's like, here's that thing we saw earlier. Now it has context. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, more to uh, what you were saying last time about. uh the way that uh, this necessarily means that something different is happening to the narrative than it was before. It can't just be purely uh, driven by reader commands because having these sort of future set moments locks you into those moments having to be observed uh, in some other fashion uh, through some means at a later point. So uh, we're seeing kind of uh, weirdly enough, like the narrowing of, stuff right like at the Mm -hmm. beginning homestuck could have been anything anything literally could have happened john could have you know done done all sorts of like uh excretions all over his desk uh Mm -hmm. but now we're getting all of these little things set up where it's like okay so we need to figure out what's happening with jade at that point in the future where pm saw her and we need to figure out what's going on with this ar guy because we already know from the uh other like characters there they seem to have some sort of presence in the past so how does this all kind of uh hook together right things are becoming determined in ways that they were not determined before Mm mm-hmm I really like this little segment after that where uh, Dave is just on the ground <laughs> texting with his phone <laughs> with this like very MS paint looking expression on his face. Uh, very good. Mm-hmm. I like it. You see, bro, just kicked my ass. That's all there is to say on the matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. It all works out. Uh, so we didn't talk about, uh, you know, the thing that happens just just a minute ago. You know, we talked about Jade flying around. And all that stuff. But she sees another tower. Oh, yeah. She sees another tower. She goes and looks in. And lo and behold, it's our good friend John mm-hmm. sleeping there. And there's all this imp shit all over the walls. Mm-hmm. And all this stuff implying that. Oh, okay. So either Suburb sees all of these things at one time. Mm-hmm. Or. Only John can't see it. Mm-hmm. That could be true. Mm-hmm. Or something else. I don't know. It could imply a lot of things, I guess. Well. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, if this is a realm of dreams, uh, then, you know, it's it's sort of more to Rose's point about this being a subconscious thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is John's mm-hmm. subconscious uh, representation of his own space. And it's uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the clown graffiti is, is visible in a way there that it isn't in his conscious life. Mm, and that's why there's this little uh, imp doll mm-hmm. on the on the ground here, maybe, or on the bed. That makes sense. And Jade gives, gives this kind of thing of being like, 
I mean, very much talking to the audience here, right? You cannot disturb his slumber, though. He will wake up when he is ready. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's a you know very very much a hey, you got to wait on the plot to catch up here a little <laughs> bit. Uh, and also, it's December twentieth, and I need time to work on this. Yeah. <laughs> um. The uh. So we get some more of that, and she, you know, we get her floating around. She's afraid of the eclipse here. Hmm. I don't know what the eclipse is of. What passes between? I was I was confused about that. What what passes between Skya and this planet? Yeah, I mean this this is also sort of uh, confusing because uh, the what it is. Okay, so the planet. Does Hussey know how an eclipse works? That's what <laughs> I, I was going to say. I think part of the problem here is that maybe the the word eclipse is being misused. But here is what is happening. Okay. Um, that golden planet. That is Prospit. You'll notice. Do that we know that's called Prospit, or is that just you knowing that? No, there there was a little when we first saw it. There was a uh, a little label that appeared in the corner that said Prospit. Uh, oh, mm-hmm. at the end of Act Two. Uh, no, it was in the when Jade sort of first like started bopping around here. Oh, okay. So like, anyway, yeah. Sorry. Okay, Eclipse. So this is Prospit. You would not necessarily know this because I don't think it's been clearly articulated in text. Uh, but you, if you look at that planet, you'll see that there is next to it another kind of smaller planet connected to it by a chain. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and that smaller planet is the one that has uh, the towers on it where it has uh, like Jane, Jade's dream bedroom and John's dream bedroom. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that little uh, thing, that's called the moon. That's Prospect's moon. And that's just me telling you that because at some point we're going to learn and like it's not a huge spoiler to be like this thing is going to be called the moon of Prospect. Yeah, not at all. Yeah. So uh, I think the idea here is that because of the way uh, Prospect is orbiting Skya, the moon is moving up and it is actually going to enter Skya. Like it's going to pass into the big round pool of clouds uh, and weird spirographs that is Skya. And that's what happens next where Jade goes to uh, Pester John and then has a whole bunch of conversations that have already happened in the comic. Like, you know, it's it's what it's similar to what happened to Dave where we find out like, oh, OK, uh, when we started with Jade, we started at the beginning of the day rather than simultaneous with John as we did with Rose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Got it. So the eclipse then is uh, the moon coming between Prospect and Skya. Got it. Right. Uh, and then we see because and this is, you know, all of these like clouds show us bizarre visions of everything. And this is, of course, where uh, Jade gets kind of her visions of the future. But it's also where we learn that Beck came to Earth on a meteor. Did we learn that? Is that at the end of it? I just missed it. Yeah. This, oh, I'm watching it right now. You'll get it. I'm, I'm watching S. Jade Pester John, right? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, this is, okay. I had a, I had trouble with this when it went live, but I'll, I'll talk about it. Uh, I'll give you a moment to, to watch it unless you just want to like. I'm watching real, so I'm watching the planet uh, zoot around. Mm-hmm. And, okay. And it's passing. I see, I see exactly what's happened here. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think you're right. Eclipse is maybe not the right word for what's happening here. Okay, so we're entering the platonic realm of eternal dream. Mm-hmm. Garden Gnostic. Yep. Oh, yeah. How about that? <gasps> mm-hmm. Okay, so she's up here in the in the cloud realm. She's in Skya. Mm-hmm. Getting all the info. 
some of these images really shot length in here. Come on. Okay, <laughs> so the same visual effect, the same like alpha visual effect that happens with Beck is what's happening with these clouds, which is interesting. So we're like seeing through the clouds into the world. Same thing as we saw with Beck. Seeing a robot use a computer, that's pretty wild. <laughs> Doesn't happen in the real world. Okay, so even more of this. I've watched this already two times, and I still obviously didn't get everything out of it. So, all right, we're still in there. We're still getting more cloud stuff. I can see Rose's house burning here. I can see uh, uh, the desert. I can see Dave's thing. I can see a volcano. I can see John's head flying around as a cloud. I see Beck's head flying around as a cloud. The future past are kind of like blinking in and out mm -hmm. too. So in case you didn't get it earlier, it's being clear here. Seen that meteor fly out again. It's a lot of resonances. Oh, I see. So that meteor, the not so it's not just any meteor. It's the meteor that we saw come out of the, like the little Skya portal thing, mm -hmm. or the suburb portal. Mm -hmm. That thing is what that is Beck. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I'm putting it all together now. I see. Robot using a computer again. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay. And that's it. Yep. And then that's thing. Yeah. The, the spot where Beck uh, emerged is where the frog temple uh, exists now. Mm -hmm. So we get all of that uh, and we get a sense for I don't know, the time scale that we're operating on. It also, you know, slightly I, I already said when Beck first showed up, I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, what do I do with this? Like, I have no way of just like. I have no way of like slotting this into any other thing that I know about this comic up to well, this point. The other thing here that's that matters. I wish I could pause this thing. Uh, the other thing that I bet God, I bet people at the time, I bet they really wish they could pause uh, it. <laughs> what they would do, what they would do. And this is happening in the essay thread. Uh, they would um, download the SWF file and they would decompile it and they would look through the assets. Uh, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but so what? But there's also like weird time compression happening on on here because during Skya during this like Skya vision thing we see that meteor hit Rose as a robot is talking to John and that's the conversation that they are having about the meteor hitting so the meteor hitting conversation that she has with John toward the beginning of Homestuck is actually her in the dream realm seeing something that happened in the infinite past mm -hmm. of the of of the planet earth mm -hmm. and she is experiencing it in the moment in the weird dream moment as a robot yes jesus what a what a fucking thing but then but then we get the information so john comes out of his little tower he's floating and we see the thing where john passed out earlier and was asleep all those visions he had those were happening to him in the dream world. He, uh, you know, uh, they were Skya visions happening on uh, this little dream planet or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so when Jade wakes up from her dream here, that's also when John wakes up earlier in the comic mm -hmm. after his combat he had. Mm -hmm. It can't get more complicated than this, right? <laughs> uh, it's impossible. It's impossible for it to get more complicated. Well, it seems like I, I, I'm, uh, I'm cribbing from your notes a little bit here, but maybe this is a good place to put it. It seems like it gets complicated enough that people need to create a reference document. Yeah. Yep. Um, so one of the other things that's going on in uh, the I mean, there's already a fan wiki 
I should say, mm-hmm. right? That already mm-hmm. exists. And like, there's a lot of work being done on the fan wiki at this point uh, in live updates of like, you know, pulling things apart, like making assumptions or like trying to, you know, intuit sort of plot twists and things like that. Um, that's all happening. Uh, and boy, howdy, uh, do people need it? Uh, this is also the kind of work that's being done in forums. But also people are trying to make a uh, wiki like a Wikipedia page like on the actual Wikipedia for uh, MS Paint Adventures. And I'm only mentioning this because it's a it's a sort of point of ongoing conversation in the something awful thread um, where they want there to be a Wikipedia page for MSPA and it keeps getting deleted because uh, like there's an admin or a mod or whatever who is keeping an eye on it and doesn't think it's important enough for there to be a a dedicated Wikipedia page. Like there's a conversation that's happening in the essay thread about specifically the Wikipedia page uh, where they're like, basically like how do we annoy this mod enough that they will stop deleting the MSPA page? Like if we, how many times do we have to keep remaking it? Um, or like, how do we kind of like game this? Uh, and, and so like mm-hmm. basically people are coming into the thread and they're like, well, it looks like so-and-so has decided to delete it again. Like, let's see if we can figure out a way to make this comic notable, which is real. Like it's time to buckle up Reddit. We're going on a treasure hunt or something. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, but, um, yeah, so so that's a thing that's happening. The other thing to mention, actually, and it's good that we are mentioning it here, uh, this is the flash where the site starts having hosting issues. Hmm. The reader base has grown to the size, uh, and also this flash is is particularly long. It's 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 I think maybe the biggest flash thus far. Um, uh, there are enough people trying to access this thing in a short enough amount of time after the first update that it is crashing the website. So uh, we are seeing kind of the the growing pains of the the Internet phenomenon in the late 2000s, right, uh, where mm-hmm. suddenly there's more people coming here. We don't have the hosting co- to kind of support them all coming to, to see this flash animation. And also there's this kind of like weird uh, proxy war going on where we're trying to establish the importance of MSPA uh, well enough that there can be a Wikipedia page for it. Uh, how do we make this comic notable enough to have its own Wikipedia page and the finger on the monkey's paw curls? <laughs> Oh, well, how did they do it originally? Um, I, th- I mean, what was the what was the mechanism through which it happened? I don't know do yet. Know? They still it uh, mm. it got deleted after the new year. They made it. Uh, they they remade it, and then it got deleted uh, by the end of Act Three. <laughs> it's a weird kind of uh, thing that's happening here, where uh, we are homestucking ourselves in some way because like two concurrent flows of time are are happening while we're doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where there's like re- there's like homestuck time and then thread time and then our time, so I guess three, mm-hmm. and we're trying to track all the resonances between all of them. <laughs> uh, you know, check that out, homestuck fans. Yeah, anyone can do it. I mean, I can't. <laughs> frankly, I can't wait until I start reading my own posts. So <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, because you haven't showed up yet. Is I, what you're saying? No, I'm not. I'm not posting in the thread. I'm just sort of uh, reading the comic at this point. Um, gotcha. I come in, I come into the thread much later and I don't know if I'm ever going to draw attention to myself, but we'll, we'll see mm-hmm. if I have something interesting to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we get some re- replication, a little bit of like chat logs to like, 
make sure we know what's going on. Yeah. And I remember uh, being so we get. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say I remember being very ahead. confused by this page when it first posted because I had no idea how I was supposed to read it. I was like, am I supposed to be reading these chat logs or am I supposed to be watching this animation? Um, mm-hmm. It's just I think it's a, a bit jumbled in, in how it's presented. <laughs> yeah, it probably should just be two. It should probably be uh, that animation and then probably this. F- yeah, it's hard to do. Maybe Jade in the um, back on the computer doing it to denote a little bit of a passage of time. But this is a replicated chat log from before of, of Jade explaining when she um, went and checked out the explosion and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, what, what else here? So, I mean, those are the big major moves that happen here, right? Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to see. I'm trying to check through my notes here to see if there's anything else that's like really getting me here oh there's a little bit you we're starting to see some of the friction between the creative um you know the 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 person making the comic and then like the audience here Mm -hmm. um uh so we get this is a little bit earlier than what we were just talking about but 1052 um the command is alchemize in a 1980s time-lapse montage and then the responses that would be pretty cool and it would promote the appearance to the audience that a whole lot was getting done in not much time but it also sounds like kind of a pain in the ass so you decide to play it straight up this time <laughs> yes. so there's a little bit of just like hey i'm gonna not i'm not doing that mm-hmm. <laughs> that's too much work um and uh and i i feel like we get a little bit more of that here you were talking earlier about how rose was kind of like you know, resistant to audience commands. And it seems like there's a little bit more of, even if this is not a direct audience command, it's a kind of like, Hey, I don't, I'm doing a thing in the way that I'm doing it here because it's easier for me to do it that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, again, we can kind of feel the minimization of um, the external and then the kind of, you know, the game just doing its own thing. I also like that John Egbert's just wearing a suit now. <laughs> yeah, because his dad left him a suit and then he like starts alchemizing like his suit with various things. Uh this is actually mm-hmm. one of the cute things about Homestuck going forward is just like when characters get opportunities to make new outfits. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's something uh you know it's it's not plot relevant in any way, but it's like it's a nice little bit of greebling. Yeah, it's a uh, fashion souls. It's yeah. like fun to see your little uh, your little character take on new clothes mm-hmm. and see what they look like in it. Uh, something that really has not aged particularly well is all the Cosby humor. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> woof. So John uh, uh, alchemizes a a a poster of the film Ghost Dad starring Bill Cosby um, with a, a laptop to make a, the Cosby top, which is a, a laptop shaped like Bill Cosby. I'm just going to read here from uh, Hussey's commentary. Prepare yourself for this. I'm prepared. And <laughs> Bill Cosby is the perfect father. We all know this. Whereas being Crosby, though quite fa- uh, though quite fatherly on screen, was actually a total douche to his real kids. I didn't know this until way after I put him in Homestuck. I wonder if Dad would have a dramatic breakdown if he learned that. Asterisk. Years later, edit because uh, you know Hussey did the commentary on the first, I think, three acts uh, in self-published volumes shortly after, I think, probably Act Three or Act Four. So uh, a lot of this commentary is years old and is being updated. So asterisk. Years later, edit. Ha ha. This is all caps. Ha ha. Let's politely sidestep the fact that he, that is to say, Cosby, is now better known as a serial rapist than a good father. Uh, 
then, you know, haha, sex crime spanning five decades. Wow. Moving on. That that I'm not shocked that that is the way that that is written, mm-hmm. like an indirect, like not addressing the point. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, th- like, like, uh, obviously addressing the point of like, damn, this joke did not age well, and and that is ultimately what what the commentary is saying there. But like, not directly saying that, mm-hmm. you know, and just being like, whoa, wow, how about that? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, very that very much fits the style here. Um, yeah, I, and the thing here too being, you know, if there is a, uh, we, you know, we've already talked about Nick Cage and, and all that kind of stuff. Ghost Dad is certainly in that world of like, um, Mac and me of like ironically appreciated like meme humor movies like from the 90s or I I think Ghost Dad's from the 80s, but, Mm -hmm. um, you you know, it had like a cult following of like, oh, look how shitty this movie is like Troll 2. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those films. And so I was not surprised to see it kind of pop up here. And uh, and it's interesting that that was Hussey's response to, mm-hmm. to all of that. Yep. Uh, what do you think about these trolls? Uh, do you have a page number where they show up again? Uh, one zero. Right. No, that's not right. Mm-hmm. I think I have them here. Uh, oh, actually, it just might be one thousand. Uh, 1093, I think is what I have. What? Oh, they mentioned the trolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, the p- uh, page 1000 is when, uh, John and Jade are talking about the trolls. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So yeah. Uh, 1093. Oh yeah. So is this a true, I presumably, yeah, because they're began trolling mm-hmm. tentacle therapist, but, uh, the, uh, it's it's not gray yeah this is a different troll this is not carcinogeneticist mm-hmm. this is grim auxiliatrix to, to give you a sense again if you're not reading along uh ga uh writes in kind of a uh an emerald green kind of text uh and has very very no contractions uh capitalizes every single word not you know all caps but the first letter of each word is capitalized um so you get the sense of like a very sort of like specific and clipped way of speaking and the first thing ga says um is why is it that when the subject of temporal mechanics is broached your sparing human intellects instantly assume the most ingratiating posture of surrender imaginable time is not that difficult to understand it is a utility that a universe may resort to in order to advance a desired degree of complexity or may not resort to if that is the case it's all pretty pedestrian but no, when time travel comes up, you present that face that a man shows when the breeze gradually alerts him to his absence of nether dressings. I don't see how we are to properly agitate you all if you continue to insist on failing to understand basic concepts which common infants effortlessly manage to describe via scrawlings in their own puddles of sloppy discharge. To which Rose replies, Have we spoken before? Uh, no, but in the future, yes, <laughs> right. So there's like timey weird stuff going on here again with the trolls. Mm-hmm. It seems like they they are part of this time system too. Um, you got to be real bored to go back in time and troll somebody. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, you really do. Uh, yeah, and so like the other like basically what we the 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 sense that we get from GA here uh, because what GA keeps saying is that you know uh, 
Oh, we have talked. Uh, I guess it's in your future. But for me, it was only a few minutes ago. So like not only are the trolls kind of like a part of this weird time system, but they are also disconnected from it or they are they are related to it in a different way than the kids seem to be. Uh, Yeah. And frankly, uh, this is one of the things that keeps me going through act three, because what this reminds me of, uh, Cameron, is Book of the New Sun. (laughs) Oh, no. Talking about Jonas over there? (laughs) Uh, Specifically, no, I'm thinking of the Hyraduels. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, if you're listening at home, uh, Book of the New Sun is a science fiction, uh, a series of science fiction novels by Gene Wolfe. And in that book, I I could go on about everything that that book is about. But specifically what I'm referring to here is there are characters called Hyraduels who interact with the main character narrator, a a guy named Severian. And sort of the big uh, the big thing about them and their interactions is that as Severian moves forward in time, the Hyraduels are moving backward. And so they repeatedly meet one another, but the Hyraduels, because they move backward in time relative to Severian, are always are they're always telling him about things that have not happened yet from his perspective. But they're treating him as if he's the same person that they've already met because they think he is. But he also has not had the experiences that he's going to have. Uh, And so, you know, one of the one of the things about Book of the New Sun that I think, you know, primed me for Homestuck is it's filled with like these weird little time puzzles uh, about figuring out how characters are interacting with one another and, and then sort of being amused when you're like, huh, <laughs> like, no wonder this conversation is so confusing because here are all of the things that everyone is taking for granted, but no one has any access to uh, because of, you know, time bullshit. Yeah, full of full of time loops and. Uh, uh, an extremely opaque ending that involves time, time stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if you refuse to read the fifth book, which I think maybe most of us should. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. I, I, a lot of, a lot of overlap here mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. So that was that like during this chat log, I remember thinking like, Oh, like the Hyra jewels from book of the new sun. I'm in, like, I didn't, the trolls irritated me, I will say. When carcinogeneticist mm-hmm. showed up, I was like, oh, my God, why is this character here? What's going on? It was another one of those uh, things that I mentioned where this this here in Act 3, things start uh, uh, unfolding in ways that make me skeptical. But this idea that the trolls have some sort of different temporal relationship to the narrative than the main kids, that was like, oh, I'll see how this goes, because I, I really liked that aspect of Book of the New Sun. And so I stuck around. Mm-hmm. And then, like right after this, we see Dave also encountering some trolls. Yes, uh, Adios Teodor uh, Toriador. Yeah, Adios Toriador, uh, AT, who speaks. Uh, the, the their text is in Brown, and uh, they have the lowercase letter at the beginning of every word, and then the rest is uppercase. They also end uh, most of their sentences with commas rather than periods. So the overall sense is, uh, well, so this is when Adios Toriador begins pestering or trolling Turntech Godhead. Hey, first, okay, I think you're awful. Let's put that fact on the table where we can both see it. Now you have been primed for the digestive ruination that's about to take place and the comprehensive soiling of the laundry enveloping your person. And then Dave responds, oh, my God, you type like a tool. And then AT's response is, yeah, now you're getting it. What you are in for. (laughs) 
are you ready to be trolled within an inch of your miserable human cortex? Um, yeah, this uh, uh, this troll's not good. <laughs> no, <laughs> and is immediately counter trolled in like just a cavalcade of offensive ways by Dave. Yeah, um, just the the it's, longest, loudest uh, homophobic joke, just pages and pages. Yeah, it just keeps going. It like it becomes a Vietnam War analogy that is also a, a homophobic joke. Uh, it just really it goes everywhere that you can do, and uh, the at the end, you know, as an inversion, and this is all, all like character development, right? Like Dave is this type of person. Mm-hmm. Dave is probably trolling people. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, one could say a big chunk of what he's saying to his friends is trolling. Yes, <laughs> based on what we've read so far. Uh, and uh, at the end of the thing, um, you know, the troll ends up blocking Dave. Mm-hmm as opposed to the other way around, right? So it really gives you kind of a difference on the relationship between each of these individual characters. Um, I, again, are, do people still think Dave is cool here? Oh, oh my God, man. The Something Awful thread, it is nothing but, oh man, Dave is so cool. Dave kicks ass. This is awesome. Uh, you know, we're, we're a couple of years away from the point where I think, you know, even people on SA are going to be like, hey, uh, it's kind of weird how, like, what Dave just did is like one, like treat homosexuality as if it's just like one giant joke, but also like, and you know, in, in some ways he's being trolled anonymously on the internet, like I guess whatever, but yeah. also like he makes this other person uncomfortable. Like by the end, it is clear that AT is like uncomfortable with the conversation and then uh, they yeah. block him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, Yeah. That, that makes sense to me. I just I wonder what the moment is. I, I mean, is there are there people still holding it down like in a broad sense? Because I don't know what happens with these characters who are holding it down for Dave in a broad sense. Oh yes, who are like Dave's where it's My at. My God. Okay. Yes. Um, I mean, but Dave I, Dave could go in interesting places here, right? I, I mean, one thing that is interesting is that I don't know where John could go that would make me like John more. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some ideas about where Rose could go as far as character development that would make me think like, oh, she's you know more more than a two dimensional person. Um, Jade, I have no idea where Jade could go that would make me like Jade more than I just do at this point. But Dave, I, I there's a lot of room for him to be less of a shithead, I guess, and that's probably interesting or could be interesting if it happens. Um, but if it, I mean, I'm not interested in this Dave. Mm-hmm. You know this this instantiation of. Of Dave the teenager. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say there are definitely people holding down Fort Dave to this very day. Um, they are a different sort of person, probably, who was holding down Fort Dave early on. And mm-hmm. uh, we're going to be swimming in Dave's eventually. I'll just tell you. Um, so as in multiple Dave's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK, great. Mm-hmm. All right, fine. I don't. <laughs> all right. I'll figure it out when we get there. <laughs> Uh, other stuff that I'm looking at here. Um, I just wrote big question marks for a lot of that. <laughs> for I'm looking at my notes for that that flash that we watched. Yeah. All right, but big bunch of question marks. We we do get like more information about the aimless renegade. We learn about them being covered in caution tape. It's a pretty cool outfit. Hmm. Um, a lot of stuff there. Just doing doing the business we see jade set up the scenario to where the uh um what do you call it the grappling hook can be used and all of that Mm -hmm. um 
know, it's what we were talking about earlier. That's all happening here at the end of like them moving around in the right places or whatever, based on what she says and then sending that thing back in time. Uh, uh, they send it back in time. This this is amazing. It's on eleven twenty nine. So years in the past, and it's this this big beautiful butterfly. <laughs> yes. And then and then eleven thirty as we zoom out a little bit, and there's like oh, it's like a big horn looking thing. What could that be? And then eleven thirty one is Grandpa just blasting this thing <laughs> with a huge musket, like like a like a blunderbuss with a scope. On yes. It. And it's the dumbest. It's like a Looney Tunes joke, right? Like a hundred percent a Looney Tunes style joke. And but it's really funny. I I really like it. Uh, and then we get Jade cut to you know, and like the ground for like a yard and a half is smoky. Yes. And after he shoots that butterfly, but then we get Jade in the past receiving from the future that that package that comes all the way deep into her childhood past. So we get the kind of finality of that, and then we get. John's dad taking the imp lord's hat mm-hmm. and setting it on fire. Like John's dad's just w- kicking ass. He's so cool. And then uh, I do think it's interesting. The imp lord's got like a serial number tattoo on his arm. Yeah, it's like it's a barcode. And uh, we saw earlier that WV had one on his arm as well. Yeah, I I don't. Uh, the historical resonances of putting pe- people putting identifiers on people's wrists, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't I don't know if that is a, a purposeful reference here or not, but I, I I would discourage people from doing that in their fiction. I think, um, in a general sense, it does not turn out to be like the 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 worst possible thing that it could be in this sense. Well, that's great. Um, I mean, it's good. It, I mean, I mean, that's serious. Yeah, it's good to know. Like it's it's um, a I mean, actually I'll go ahead and tell you like the. I think that's intended to signify that these people are game constructs, right? The game made them. Got it. Yeah. Right. They were manufactured. Yeah. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's the vibe that I've gotten so far from from all these characters. The uh, uh, 1145 here at the end, Jade summons up a bunch of lily pads because she's trying to get into the tower where Beck would not let her get before. Mm-hmm. And so she's done all this kind of goofery while Beck is sleeping in order to get into the tower. I really like this little animation here where she summons she summons lily pads by playing the guitar and then like jumps from lily pad to lily pad. This is a, a I don't know if it's a, a purposeful reference or not, but this looks exactly like the lily pad jumping segment from the logical journey of the Zumbinis. <laughs> <laughs> and it's even using some of the same color stuff. So I think that's quite interesting. And I love that there's this like fictional mental representation of jade up in the corner where she's like ribbit ribbit she's like i'm a frog right like that's a, <laughs> i love that about jade is that you'll often get like how she imagines herself doing the thing <laughs> yes <laughs> um and then she's like in front of this like big hieroglyphic glowing tower mm-hmm. um and then we get to the piece you know that you narrated kind of at the end of here's how it's all coming together and then we get the final animation where Dave is using the the server thing in order to help Rose get into the game finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, a couple of things locked together and, and more mysteries are raised. So this is uh, this flash is called S Enter, and it is considered another kind of uh, flashpoint, so to speak, for the comic. This is another point where a lot of people and, you know, this is this is evident in the essay thread of like, oh, holy crap, that's so cool. 
uh, because it, you know, it locks together certain things like uh, showing us the broken Zazerpan statue. But then also, in case that wasn't enough, we get to see a brief flashback to WV's uh, rocket taking off. But it plays in reverse and we see that it like comes back down into uh, its sort of launch pad. Uh, and it's uh, oh, it's a wine bottle, right? Because Rose had a wine mm-hmm. bottle that was her entry item that she she had to like smash it. And then and this is, you know, not necessarily stuff that you nec- should have picked up in just reading it. Uh, but it's stuff that you get if you ruminate on it, where uh, back when PM was walking by uh, that large tree and that orb that she got into was, you know, obviously kind of a mimic of the apple that fell off of John's tree, which was his entry item. So we're getting kind of these weird resonances there. Uh, we have that. And then we set up sort of the additional mystery of this weird lotus pod thing in the temple that is counting down. And then when it opens up, it has Dave's sperb discs in it somehow. And the last we knew, Dave's sperb discs are lying on the ground uh, in the street in front of his apartment building like he could not get mm-hmm. to them. Uh, and so it's still a mystery as to how those things are going to end up in a place where they can be in Whatever the hell this thing is, um, uh, I I love how I, because these are like obviously the big plot points that you're you're you know kind of reiterating here, but the the specific ways that they all work are hilarious to me. It because like one Dave is taking forever to install this thing and he's like drawing a sweet brother mm-hmm. Jeff comic while he's waiting, which like in, in the days that we live in now, right? Even even like in the Steam install times waiting for a long thing to install and like moving discs in and out. That was like a different vibe mm-hmm. than, than any kind of game installation today, but he's doing that. And then also as he's like speed running the game to help her get out of it, he's like putting all of the items on like the most bullshit parts of the house. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> he's, he's doing such a terrible job. of it. And you can see like Rose getting pissed off, like running from place to place. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so she's like Strider. <laughs> Um, uh, and then he gets attacked by a bunch of crows. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so like even the small, like this is a hugely important, like big plot based moment in the, in Homestuck, but it is all of that big plot based stuff is 100%, you know, interspersed with character work with like goofy stuff. There's no like, all right, we're in serious mode now. Mm-hmm kind of stuff it is all all the things are happening all at once Mm -hmm. um and i think that's pretty cool we also get uh just the you know at the beginning of this act we had that note from nana that was like wow nana seemed to know quite a bit about the game even before she died and then here we see nana appearing to write the exact same inscription but writing it new in the new copy of john's book before throwing it into the clouds underneath the house so that's another like weird thing that gets set up and in fact uh as it falls through the clouds uh you get a brief glimpse of something underneath it like a kind of landscape with like a river or something and it's very very brief Mm. and it's one of the things that i noticed in the essay thread they had decompiled the flash and they're like oh this is what's below the clouds so finding secrets that Mm. way oh interesting Mm -hmm. and that pays off later oh yes oh okay gotcha yeah, I uh, and then we get to see John wearing his suit and like beating a bunch of imps up. Yeah, he he becomes a a superhero uh, finally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it; it's great. And he zips up into his thing, and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. 
so so Rose is in the game. Dave is being attacked by crows. Jade is has has the discs finally, so could presumably help Dave get in the game now. Mm-hmm. And then uh, John is in like the next stage, wherever that is. Kind of big question mark. Yeah. Uh, and we sort of zoom out like uh, that. John's house is on, you know, that little spire of earth. Uh, mm-hmm, and yeah. it, it like the camera sort of, you know, camera, quote unquote, like the frame keeps pulling out panel to panel. And we see that it's not just like an empty expanse. Like this is a, a planet, apparently. And like then the curtains fall. So then that's that's how act three ends. Yeah, it's a little purple planet. I actually wonder I'm going to go back or it's blue. I'm sorry, it's not purple. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's blue. I'm going to look here. I'm going to go to my little Homestuck map here, conveniently in this little app that we're using. I'm going to go back to, uh, oh gosh, where's the mendicant get, okay, tab. It's right before he gets <laughs> obsessed with tab. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's scroll back. Cause remember the, uh, the, or wait, right. The vagrant, not the mendicant, mm-hmm. but the, uh, the vagrant was drawing all these different planets and shit. All right. There's one with a volcano on it. That might be the actual human earth. There's one that's orange. I don't know about that one. There's one that's completely like a black splotch, but there is one that's blue. Mm-hmm. But it's got clouds all around it, so maybe that's not the right one either. Well, I mean, go back and look at that other planet. It does have clouds all around it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, but this one's the clouds are like way far away from it. Mm. This is a 703 that I'm looking at here, so I don't know. I mean, maybe it's that one. Oh, yeah. I'm, it just looks a little different. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess we'll find something out. Yeah, we'll figure it out. I'm sure it's, I'm just, you know, looking at the clue, what I would have done at the time, which is, let's go back and look at our clues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, you know, perfect kind of losty style here, right? Of like, all these pieces kind of fitting together. Like, oh, I see the structure of this thing, but the they don't quite fit together. That's like some, like, apex J.J. Abrams shit right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's that's all. Oh, uh, you know, they they talk about too much friendship at one point. Did you see that? Uh, <laughs> too much friendship. Or <laughs> that's our hangout podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what I thought. I was like, wow. Yeah, it's on. Uh, if you uh, hold on, let me. I have it. Right. It's eleven thirty-five. It's the note that um, is written to Jade from John that she reads in the past, the deep past, or the the slightly deep, <laughs> deeper past. Oh yeah, her own past. <laughs> And yeah, she says, uh, that is almost like too much friendship. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> awesome. Uh, but yeah, you know what? So uh, what did people think? You know, so I think at the end of this, maybe I'll give you my, my, I was like, okay, this is not, this is maybe a little bit more, certainly at the beginning of the act. Like I said, I was like, eh, I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe writing some checks, but can't cash Andrew Hussey. And now at the, at the end of it, I'm like, oh, maybe you can. Maybe you can cash those checks mm-hmm. because a lot of these pieces are coming together and they're coming together at the cost of um, really having to to like n- maybe not make it serious, but make most panels move the plot forward. Mm-hmm. I would say the vast majority of the panels are moving the plot somewhere. Mm-hmm. There's not there's not nearly as much wheel spinning as Acts 1 and 2 um, of, you know, just things happening. And it seems like that's partially because Hussey's grabbing the reins and really kind of getting us to these these things. So at the end of, of Act 3, I was like, oh, dang, okay, this is real interesting. There's a lot of stuff happening here. Very confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I might have to, like, get out a sheet of paper, <laughs> but uh, but enough that I can keep it in my head. Mm-hmm. 
What did the world, what did people say? Um, similarly to Act 2, uh, people loved this, right? This this like was another kind of bar raising in, in terms of expectations mm-hmm. and in terms of like people's reactions. And so I had, a, in, I'm going to quote this person, um, and not to like slam them or dunk on them, but, a, but because I think, you know, it's a good entry point to something that's going to become more prevalent as we go on there is someone in the it, it is uh it is maybe emblematic of a stance mm-hmm. toward the comic yes Got it. so uh someone in the essay thread in response to this end of act flash uh says uh something along the lines of i am beginning to think that andrew hussey is the incarnation of human creativity uh it's a wild thing to say. Yes. Like, like to be clear, this is a cool Flash animation. I like this. I like yeah, Homestuck. Yeah, me too. I think it's cool. Yeah, me too. Um, but it, as this was happening kind of live, uh, this this attitude of like, holy crap, how how like the genius of the the creative mind behind this uh, becomes more and like this this is a thing that you hear more and more it gets louder and louder as like you know it it, it people start talking about it, it almost seems like inhuman that a human being could be doing all of this um and the answer to some of this right is that like well it's not one human being doing it uh andrew hussey is yeah. definitely kind of a ringleader but we've got people helping out with programming and we've got people writing music and and producing it and uh i don't think this has been explained yet in any of like the Q and A's or form spring, but uh, later on Hussey will say, you know, like when I am thinking of flashes, I start with the song and then I sort of pace out the animation relative to that. Mm-hmm. So these animations don't exist without the music in, in a real way. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a kind of thing to point out there. Um, and then there's just sort of the, 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 observation to be made uh why do people have this kind of response like what the heck is happening uh and uh now it's time to talk about foucault uh so well but but i think i one thing i want to say about that really quickly before we talk about foucault yeah is that you know i i really do think that it's because I think part of this response comes from uh, that some people are being introduced to this st- type of story via Homestuck, mm-hmm. which is like, because I think when you say something like Andrew Hussey, I, obviously that's, a, you know, being the, the the incarnation of human genius, that's all that is, I think even from that, when that person writes that down, that is obviously, um, uh, you know, outsized. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, right, what's right. the word for It's that? hyperbole hyperbole there we go i couldn't come up with but that. like you know you you do that in situations where it's like the feeling that you have is so strong that the only thing you can have you, you can use to articulate it or express it is hyperbole yes yeah and so yes exactly so that that is the kind of thing is it's like oh yeah it's it's hyperbolic but it's also like uh like <laughs> there's something real in there mm-hmm. you know that this oh my god this is so good and, you know, I think the Homestuck, it is cool so far, and I think it's rad, but it is not, uh, it is not mind-blowing to me for the most part, and it's it's not even, like, outside of a bunch of different stuff I've read, you mm-hmm. know, I, th- I think it's, like, of a piece of a lot of science fiction that I've read, and some fantasy that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, the complexity of what's going on here, I mean, some something that is interesting and unique about it is the kind of gamey 
thing going on there. You know, I think that that is as pretty unique as far as it's concerned. But like the plot, the way it's interconnecting all these different weird things, you know, like I said before, I think in the last time we recorded no, a couple ago, you know, I think a big intertext here, a big thing that's in the the shadowy margins of Homestuck is Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Watchmen does a lot of this stuff with time in particular mm-hmm. um, and time and using images to replicate and show different moments in time. Um, I think it's very similar to, to Earth of the New Sun, or not Earth of the New Sun, but the Book of the New Sun, mm-hmm. broadly. Uh, I think there are a lot of comics in particular that that kind of resonate here. So, you know, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, oh, this is like a, a lot of other stuff that I've read. But I imagine that if you had only had ever encountered this type of storytelling for the first time through this, in the same way that, frankly, when I encountered the Book of the New Sun, I was like, holy shit, what? <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, you can do this? Um, you know, it blew my mind at the time. And so I, I think that that has a lot to do with the grabbiness of Homestuck in some ways and why it is so kind of um, um, has so much suction as far as when people get into it, they get into it. Mm-hmm. You know, they are they are about it because it is this wildly... Um, uh, experimental thing if you're not familiar with the kind of experimental space that it's operating into or operating within. I also find it really interesting that a lot of the commentary that we've seen since we've launched the show has been around people saying things, or I've, I've seen a lot of this where people say, Oh, I was, I liked Homestuck, but I lost, uh, you know, I lost interest in act four or act five. I've seen a lot of that, which I'm very curious about how that goes. But, um, that really resonates with me around something like Book of the New Sun, where I've seen a lot of people say, oh, I like the first two books, but it got way too complicated, like trying to track what is even happening in this thing. So I just quit reading. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's a pretty common thing where because now Book of the New Sun is sold in kind of like two volumes, the first two books and the last two books. Mm-hmm. And lots of people finish the first two and do not begin the next two. Mm-hmm. Um, and precisely because it gets kind of weighed down by its own apparatus and i wonder if that's partially what's happening with homestuck mm-hmm. that it gets really weighed down by all the resonant stuff and it and and you have to really kind of steal yourself to get through it mm-hmm. um and so so that's all to say like i'm seeing a lot of the same um you know stuff that that i've seen in similar works even you know the way it unfolds and the way that people have their experiences of it even that looks similar to other parts of the genre so um, curious to keep keep going with it, but but I think that, that that explains in some ways to me why what we've read so far is explaining to me why the Homestuck fan base is or or interacts or talks about Homestuck in the way it does is it you know is operating in this uh, pretty rarefied era of of similar works. Yeah, and I think the other thing to keep in mind also is that you know this this is a web comic. Or, you know, started out as that. And especially if I'm reading the Something Awful thread, like, these are people who read webcomics. And so there is no (laughs) other webcomic at the time that is really doing this kind of... I mean, there are other probably... Like, there are other webcomics with, like, lots of weird time travel stuff, right? Uh, But there is... (laughs) The presentation for Homestuck is so different. These flash animations, the music, and and sort of the quality of them. uh, I mean, it really sells... uh, the whole thing, I think. And and it's it's cool to have a response to that, right? It, it makes sense to be like, mm-hmm. damn, this is really neat. <laughs> yeah. And I say all of that not to be like, oh, these people have not read other stuff mm-hmm. or like encountered other complicated stuff. But but more to say that I totally understand that, like, I mean, it's the way I feel about the book of the new sun mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. Right. Not to keep bringing that up, but it it was so impactful to me. And I became such a huge 
I don't know if I'm a fan of it necessarily, but I certainly find it fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is because you know it hit me really hard in a way that um, nothing really had before, and it shares a lot of, of of qualities with this. And so, if if I just happened to read Homestuck first, I probably would have had that same relationship with Homestuck. Um, so there is something about the kind of form and complexity itself that makes it grippy and grabby as a work mm-hmm. by you know just that itself does it lost as well mm-hmm. i mean that, i'm a huge fan of lost and that's exactly why you know I, I i see that as it's coming out i was like holy shit what is this mm-hmm. what's going on a show happening in real time that's not canceled sign me up <laughs> i oh my god i think i'm pretty sure i had an argument with a friend at the time where i was like i'm going to wait until it's uh, over or canceled and then i'll watch it and they were so upset with me <laughs> <laughs> very funny i did the I same mean, thing with arrested <laughs> development <laughs> well you know uh talk about something that should have stayed dead. yeah Jesus. something about talk about something that keep every time a little bit more of it comes out it's it's ruined even more mm-hmm. um anyway not to get too sidetracked, but you wanted to talk about Foucault. Right. So uh, I wanted to bring up, you mentioned in, in a previous episode, uh, we should maybe talk a little bit about the author function. And I had a point in time, specifically when reader commands go out the window, where I wanted to talk about the author function. But I actually think it's going to help us here because this is where I'm seeing the, you know, the 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 responses of people, you know, thinking like, OK, this person just must be, you know, I'm going to say this ironically or, you know, somewhat ironically, the incarnation of human creativity. But what I mean to say is like this person is doing something that is so cool and so sort of multifaceted that it is very difficult for me to even conceptualize, you know, how this person's mind is working or what they might be. Uh, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of like a personality, uh, I think that's sort mm-hmm. of the the intended, uh, you know, reading there uh, beyond the hyperbole. Um, and so what we are seeing there is a great example of what Foucault calls the author function. Uh, it can be helpful here uh, to reference something that I think is more generally known on the Internet, which is Bart's Death of the Author and uh, specifically how Death of the Author, I think, tends to circulate in a very uh, a fairly simplified version uh, is something like, you know, authorial intent cannot be known. Uh, therefore, the author's uh, intentions, desires or wishes or even, you know, kind of their overall motivations uh, don't really have any bearing on what an individual reader is going to take away from any given text, which is a a sort of fair summary, although I would also add that, uh, you know, Bart's argument here is based in a a fairly complicated uh, understanding of language and semiotics. And and there's a it's something we talked about, I think, on the Stephen King or the Just King Things uh, bonus episode. Uh, There's a whole worldview that that like there are ideas that attach, right? You can't just say these things. There are understandings of the world and how it works um, that get pulled along with this. Uh, And this is where Foucault kind of enters the picture. Um, Not because uh, Bart is necessarily being ahistorical, but he's not being historical or historicist enough for Foucault, who wants to say, like, yes, all right, it is true. All this stuff about, like, authorial intent and and, uh, how it's kind of not really going to factor into any given reader's kind of takeaway. But here's the here's, you know, the, the, the quintessentially kind of Foucauldian move is like, so where do authors come from? Why do we have them anyway? 
because they're a historical function. Uh, you know, if we look into history, when we think of uh, like the great poems of like the pre-modern past, especially if we think of like, say, medieval literature in Europe, um, authors are very often unknown because authors of those works were not important. Authors were known for things like uh, histories and political and medical treatises because uh, the author and the name carried authority, right? Like that those words are literally related. Uh, and so in the, the kind of like long track of, of European history, we see this kind of strange shift where authors in the sciences are sort of like, you know, the, the hard knowledges, things like uh, uh, medicine and history or not history, but uh, like natural history, as it would have been called. Um, they become like specific authors there become less important relative to like whatever systems that they've thought up or discovered or sort of outlined, whereas fiction uh, especially once we get kind of uh, the emergence of like the printing press and people who are writing for uh, like writing to make a living uh, in the, the late medieval and early modern period. Uh, authors become dreadfully important uh, for a whole host of reasons. One is that, as Foucault would put it, discourse becomes property in a way that it hadn't been before. So uh, discourse, of course, for, for Foucault is kind of like not just language, but sort of um, a, a field of uh, linguistic knowledge making uh, as it interfaces with kind of material practice. So the uh, w when Foucault talks about discourse becoming property, what he means is specifically like you could be someone like Thomas Nash in uh you know in the 1500s in london where you are literally making a living by writing pamphlets and publishing them and selling them and your name is attached to them and it is important that your name is attached to them because people need to know your name so they will recognize it so they know to buy your next pamphlet and that way you can continue to make money uh this is you know it's not that people didn't write before uh but people the you know the the world changes in such a way that uh uh, you know, in the old sort of feudal system uh, changes for various other reasons, everything gets shaken up enough that suddenly there is an in for people to try to support themselves through writing. And so Foucault points out the other thing that's important then is that especially in, in like London, uh, everything that is being published is going under a censor. Like it has to be approved by the government. And so the government wants to know who's publishing things. So if they find something that is, say, uh, heretical with uh, respect to religion or subversive with respect to the monarchical state, they know who they need to punish. So the author emerges uh, into kind of like the modern period. And we think of authors uh, even today. We And this is the the. Remarks being made here about Hussey are, are kind of indicative of it, of the romantic notion of the author as the individual who uh, kind of through their own mental faculties and their experience of the world and their processing of it can uh, just, you know, pull that all together and then create something new or something different, right? The, the uh, you know, James Joyce talking about in the smithy of my soul, thou will forge the uncreated conscience of my race. Um, that very sort of specific uh, romantic notion of the author uh, comes out of the precondition of people being able to publish stuff under their own names in order to make money on the one hand, and two, to have some amount of risk of being punished for what they have written on the other. 
So that's kind of like a, a big historical thing about like where authors come from and why they're sort of important, quote unquote, to begin with. Um, but then the other function that authors serve is in terms of how we understand or read texts. So uh, an example that Foucault kind of pulls out, and this is just a, a question that he asks, right? Uh, assuming that we are dealing with an author, is everything he wrote and said, everything he left behind to be included in his work? And then he gives an example of like, if the Marquis de Sade uh, wrote a grocery list in like the margin of one of his drafts, does that get included under like the the list of the Marquis de Sade's literary works? Uh, and obviously that's a, that's a rhetorical question because someone would be like, well, no, why would we do that? And then Foucault's, you know, next precise remove, uh, maneuver is to ask, well, how do we distinguish what an author writes as their literary work versus like their personal correspondence or their letters? So, uh, you know, this this raises already questions that we've run into with Hussey in particular and in terms of how Hussey is constantly like reworking their old material into Homestuck proper, um, but in ways where it's kind of like variably useful or even like critical to know about. So, you know, what do you do with that? The other thing then that authors do um, is, and I'm just going to, uh, well, let's just say this. I'll, I will I will quote Foucault some more. <clears throat> Undoubtedly, this construction, which is to say the author, right, this idea of the author, is assigned a quote-unquote realistic dimension as we speak of an individual's profundity or creative power, his intentions or the original inspiration manifested in his writing. Nevertheless, these aspects of an individual which we designate as an author or which comprise an individual as an author are projections in terms always more or less psychological of our way of handling texts. So what Foucault is saying there is getting precisely at this like, oh, Hussey must be the incarnation of human creativity, um, which is to say, like, I interacted with an object, a media object, a textual object, and it did something to me. Right. It made me feel a certain way. Uh, and rather than sort of uh, being able to, you know, not being able to, it's not an issue of ability, but like. What we like to do is to look over the object and see who made the object and be like, that person made me feel that, not the object, right? The, the, we, we can resolve kind of our feelings in the uh, sort of projection or the fantasy of the author in a way that we can't when we're faced kind of directly with the text. Uh, and so there's going to be a whole lot more to say about the author function and what it's doing in in Homestuck and, and how it ends up operating in the fandom, I think. Uh, but these are just some pieces that I wanted to put out here and get us to, to think about, uh, which is, you know, to summarize, it's not that the author isn't dead. The author is absolutely dead. Foucault is very clear on that, you know, writing. Uh, the other thing that he points out is that in, say, like... In ancient Greece, uh, it was common to talk about writing poetry as a device for immortality that one would live forever. Uh, like I will live live forever through, you know, the eternal song that I'm about to sing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and sort of in modernity, uh, authors tend to be overtaken and killed by their texts. And someone he points to is like, say, uh, Proust, who... Uh, writes, you know, In Search of Lost Time. Proust is, is sort of famous in that In Search of Lost Time is extremely long and is sort of like 
on the one hand, deeply autobiographical in a way, but also not at all biography. It's all sort of fictionalized and things are changed and characters are close to people who really existed, uh, but also aren't those people. And the entire sort of like, you know, a thing that not, this is not the only thing people do in Proust studies, right? But like for a good long while, uh, what people were trying to do when they were studying Proust was like figure out what is fiction and what is reality. And what Foucault would sort of point out there is that like, oh, no, the fiction has eaten the reality. The only reason we care about the reality is because of the fiction. Well, he's also being funny here, too. Mm -hmm. right? Like this, this is also a like not quite a pun, but it's a joke because in search of lost time did kill Proust. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, in the end he had kind of a, um, I, he was fixated on writing. And so he would stay up all night. He slept during the day. He, uh, stayed up all night. Uh, he only for like the last several months of his life only consisted on, uh, drinking tea and eating plain crackers because he said everything else just ruined his like, ability to to digest he had really severe stomach problems he, he had he you know he was a recluse mm -hmm. he did not leave his home for maybe even years I, I'm, I'm forgetting how long but it's a significant amount of time um and so you know it, but that that's the thing i mean what foucault is pointing to and the reason i say all of those things which foucault is delivering this as a lecture in french the audience that he is talking to is going to know about proust mm -hmm. like and they're going to have at least kind of a sketch there in their head of who this person is uh, in like, you know, his kind of importance. But what, what, what Foucault is doing here, you know, is saying, yeah, the author is dead. Sure. Like, cause this is also a response to Bart directly. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, this is coming out a couple of years after uh, death of the author is published. Um, and you know, Foucault makes all these references of being like, Oh, we all know the author is dead. It's become old hat mm -hmm. to say the author's dead. You know, he's being very funny about it. But, uh, but what he's saying is like, Sure, whatever, author's dead, that's fine. But how is it the author keeps showing back up in the way that we keep claiming the author is dead? Um, you know, why Why do we keep making this maneuver of the author um, is something that, that has been supplanted by the reader in our analysis, and yet constantly in making that case, we have to talk about why, for example, it doesn't matter what Proust did in his day-to-day -day life or didn't, mm -hmm. right? So it, it doesn't matter, for example, that Proust was was gay, uh, and yet there is a heterosexual relationship that dominates the entirety of In Search of Lost Time. Mm -hmm. why, why, if the author is dead, do we have to keep referring back to this kind of figuration that we are um, removing ourselves from? Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, another way of getting at this kind of idea is the very famous uh, Paolo Virilio quote, right? The invention of the ship is the invention of the shipwreck. Mm -hmm. um, the disavowal of the author is a return of the author in some ways mm -hmm. um, as a different kind of author, an author function now, right? That sets parameters on how we even avoid the author. Um, and something you, you didn't read, but I think is, is important is that Foucault... Um, says, you know, here are four factors or kind of four qualities of what the mm. author function is. I did not want to get the into the author biblical function. exegesis. <laughs> well, we, we don't have to get into yeah. that part, but I think the summary is really yeah. helpful here because he gives an actual kind of like literal numbered summary. And he says, this is what the author as a kind of organizing principle, not as a person, mm -hmm. you know, not as J.R.R. Tolkien, the human being who lived, or Gene Wolfe, the human being who lived, and Ursula Le Guin, the human being who lived. Not the flesh and blood person, but the figure that we're referring to, 
you mm-hmm. know, the Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. You know, when we say that, th- that's an author function. What does that do then? So number one, uh, I'm quoting Foucault. One, the author function is linked to the juridical and institutional system that encompasses, determines, and articulates the universe of discourses. That's a big, long, complicated language, but that's really easy. It's just exactly what Michael explained. You know, um, uh, the author is the thing that determines how you exist in the marketplace, for example, or how the work exists in uh, the censorship system, Mm -hmm. right? So the author is the thing that locates a particular text somewhere, um, you know, kind of creates inroads or pathways that it navigates. Two, it does not affect all discourses in the same way at all times in all types of civilization, so he's just saying the author function changes. Mm-hmm. It Sometimes it matters a whole lot. Sometimes it doesn't matter at all. Three, it is not defined by the spontaneous attribution of a discourse to its producer, but rather by a series of specific and complex operations. So there is not a direct linkage between the physical body of Ursula Le Guin historically and the way that we read Ursula Le Guin. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all kinds of stuff in in between there. So, for example, our um, our podcast, Just King Things, is an exercise in reading particularly this form of the author function. You know, what is Stephen King the kind of figure? And does it matter if it's Stephen King the physical human being? Mm-hmm. In, you know, for us. I mean, we're Foucauldians in this way. No, <laughs> like not at all. And fourth, this is the last one. Uh, it does not refer purely and simply to a real individual since it can give rise simultaneously to several selves, to several subjects, positions that can be occupied by different classes of individuals. Um, which is, the, this is a way of Foucault saying that, um, I mean, this is his actual example earlier. Is Friedrich Nietzsche, in when he's 22 years old, the same as the Friedrich Nietzsche who is 40 years mm-hmm. old? And the no, you're, you right. know, like anyone who has aged in any kind of way can tell you you're definitely not the same person over every year of your life. But the author function does this thing where it says Stephen King, for example, is Stephen King from the beginning to the end of his life. Um, you know, all of that work resonates together. And that's why in that podcast, we do so much work to try to say, all right, here's King in a particular kind of moment. And he's certainly got a toolbox of ideas that he returns to over and over across his career. But we try to be very careful about tracing, well, how does that respond to the 1970s? Or how is that happening in the 80s? And how is that different? You know, how, how do his focuses or his opinions change over that amount of time? Part of what's so interesting, I think, to both of us about Stephen King is how little he does change Mm -hmm. and how consistent that toolbox is. But, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, the pragmatic example for here, this podcast that you're listening to in this very moment is there is a big question, you know, is is Andrew Hussey of 2009 the same Andrew Hussey that ends Homestuck? Mm -hmm. And anyone who has aged a year of their life would say, no, you're not the same person. And yet the work is the same work, yet is the same oeuvre, right? The same kind of um, authorial work that exists. So how do you talk about that? You know, and so part of the way that we do that is with through, you know, what, what Foucault is calling here, the author function, this kind of fictional um, bundle of characteristics that exists across the whole work um, that we can analyze. So when we were talking about Andrew Hussey, the character, or Andrew Hussey, the kind of figure, that's not necessarily the the the, the physical and fleshed human body. Mm-hmm. That is this kind of mix of discourses that emerges out of self-presentation and from the work itself. And for a work like Homestuck that's so metatextual already, I think that is very important to be very clear about here. Mm-hmm. One final note, I just want to take us back to Alexander Galloway 
if I may. Please do. Uh, just because it, it uh, so I talked about Galloway at the end of Act Two, and I want to talk about Galloway at the end of Act Three because he does not stop from being relevant. Uh, Galloway, when he talks in that chapter on the television series Twenty Four that I've already referenced, he talks about how that uh, one of the one of the hallmarks of Twenty Four is that we have multiple characters doing uh, multiple things simultaneously, and they will be represented simultaneously on screen. So we have, you know, like it's it's not just a split screen, right? It's not two things. It's it can be three things or four things. Multiple things can be happening simultaneously and they are all kind of uh interrelated in some way. Uh Galloway calls this the the polyp I, I don't know how how he would want to pronounce this. Uh polyptic or polyptic, uh but it's like, you know, if you think of a diptych in uh, uh art, right? Like a a two-sided painting or like a painting with a hinge in the middle. Um and just this is just the polyptic. Uh so it's like a a a tick with multiple panels in it. This supersedes montage as a filmic technique, says Galloway, <clears throat> quote, because it is a better representation of informatic networks perceived as they are surfaced, flat, horizontal, topological, and synchronic. Uh, I bring this up because the end of Act 3, S Enter, has this. We begin with Dave kind of installing the beta. We get then uh, on the same screen, his, like the view of his glasses reflecting the uh, Spurb logo in the screen. So we have like two views of the same scene happening. Mm. But then we also get a view of Jade, uh, a view of Rose, and a view of John, all kind of inset together. Uh, and so we have all of this stuff happening, right? This is setting up the threads that we're going to pursue through this end of act flash uh, to return to Galloway. <clears throat> uh, the polyptic is a network that allows for multiple kinds of crosstalk to take place entirely within the interface. So the interface here, think, think of something like, you know, your screen holding a browser, which holds the MS. Uh, PA website, which then holds this little flash window, which in and of itself has all of these other windows that are communicating different types of information. But visual simultaneity, says Galloway, is also paired with a specific form of narrative construction, which likewise privileges the complex synchrony of an ongoing swarm of characters in a web of interaction. Sounds a lot like Homestuck. Hmm, it does. Mm, yeah. So just some, some more more thoughts to I leave you with that more thoughts to chew on uh, in terms of like, you know, Homestuck uh, uh, made this world, but it was also made from a world. Uh, it's incorporating all of this stuff about like, you know, comics and science fiction and post 9-11 television and uh, all that stuff is is only getting more and more relevant as this thing gets more and more meta, I guess. Damn. <sighs> Well, wild. We're Range Touch. Uh, you can find out more about what we do if you follow us on twitter.com slash range touch. You can also find videos that we do at youtube.com slash range touch. Our website, rangetouch.com, has all of this information centralized. And if you go to rangetouch.com slash shop, uh, you can find our cool storefront uh, where you maybe can buy a t-shirt or, or something like that. And if you would uh, rather support us in another way, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch. This podcast only exists because uh people wanted it they uh backed our patreon if you are one of those people thank you so much i hope you're enjoying the show i'm having a lot of fun making it 
Uh, and if you want to support us, um, the it, hopefully in theory, the show will only get better. Uh, I, I promise that it is not my goal to get more money and then somehow make the show worse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you gave it the ultimate, the ultimate threat. <laughs> you gave me too much money. And now I'm like going to like stand on the opposite side of the room while I record from like my in monitor mic. <laughs> um, finally, <laughs> uh oh gosh i lost my plot uh but yeah no patreon.com slash range touch uh you know every little bit helps just a dollar a month is is it's not nothing but if you give us three dollars uh or five dollars you get all sorts of extra goodies uh for instance five dollars will get you access to the bonus episodes for just king things uh just king things is the other show where cameron and i read through the works of stephen king in publication order and talk about them in very similar ways to how we are talking about homestuck and the bonus episodes are where we do the same thing except we're talking about stephen king movies uh just a whole cornucopia of content here for you um anything else to add then i don't think so i think that's it thanks so much if you are a patreon subscriber uh we really appreciate it if you're listening to this on uh apple Podcasts, give us an old five-star review if you don't mind that would help us out a whole lot and uh, help get more visibility on the show leave a comment if you want to do that that's that's a-okay with me uh, if you could tell somebody about the show, that would also help, too. If you say, hey, this is a big, weird uh, Homestuck. It's, it's pretty strange, but there's someone who will talk you through it if you want to check it out. Uh, that would help us out a whole lot. We don't do any advertising or anything like that, so this is purely word of mouth. Um, and we depend on uh, the word going through your mouth. <laughs> we depend on the word going through your mouth. The range touch promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, next time, then uh, we will return to continue episode three and hopefully we'll finish it up. Uh, but we've ended act three and I think it's time we should, you know, take a little bit of a break. Uh, so next episode, we're just going to be talking about the intermission of Homestuck, which starts now. Uh, and so if you want your page numbers, uh, that means we're going to be reading from the end of act three to the end of the intermission, which is page 1357. Well, bonus for everybody here. I'm going to read, uh, Michael was so jazzed about this intermission. So excited to hear my live reactions that I, so I stopped for the last, you know, last part of this episode. I stopped on page 1153 curtains closed. I did not go forward. You know, I'm a good, I'm uh, you know, disciplined as far as Homestuck is concerned. But Michael's so excited about it. You're going to get my live reaction. I'm going to hit the, the right arrow here, and I'm going to see it. Okay, you ready, Michael? Mm-hmm. 11.54. Just to, okay. It's loading. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Okay. There's like some sort of green. Wait, this is this this is where the 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 night crew live or whatever yeah, they're just, called. Just click through one more. The midnight the midnight crew. Okay, so they're a little green, they're a little Slimer house. Okay, your name is Spade Slick. All right, Okay, Marvel Gang knows the felt. Okay, Diamond Strew. Okay, so oh god, so this is a guy. This we're just with the midnight crew now. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> what is the whole intermission with the midnight crew? We're gonna have to keep reading to find out. Oh, uh, the pleasure will be painting this ugly house red with the blood of those miserable green motherfuckers. <laughs> what? 
Oh. <laughs> 